0: Welcome to Teeth and Titanium, a podcast about oral surgery, residency and life. We would like to thank the Canadian Association of Oral and Maxillofacial Surgery for their continued support. All opinions expressed in this podcast by the hosts and their guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of the CAOMS. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and should not be relied upon for surgical decision making welcome to teeth and Titanium episode 8 this is our December episode Oscar how are you doing I'm doing good honestly I can't believe it's December already where has this year gone well it's probably a year you want to forget yeah yeah we won't talk about it though yeah exactly we do have a ton of stuff to talk about on this episode however lots of current events we have a great interview coming up and you know our normal journal club resin reminder and some recommendations. Without further ado, let's jump right into the current events. All right, Oscar. So it seems like every time we have a new episode, I'm introducing myself to you in a new way. First, I was just a resident and you were a surgeon. Then I graduated and I was your colleague, a surgeon, but I wasn't board certified. You kind of looked down on me a little bit. I could tell. A little bit. Uh, because, of, <laughs> because of that. <laughs> My credibility was suffering. So I introduced myself to you as as an oral surgeon. Then I was a, you know, an RCDC provisional fellow of the Royal College. So don't know what that means yet. Still not (laughs) sure what that means. But, you know, it it was a title I gained. It was a step up. So, yeah, I I, I introduced myself to you as that. Uh, Most recently on the last episode, I introduced myself to you as a father. So that when you try that trumps
1: everything, though.
0: Yeah, that was the biggest. I got nothing on that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that's why I can't really hate 2020 because it still had the best like moment of my life. So, you know, there's always going to be that. But now, you know, we're in December and I still have another introduction. I'd like to introduce you to myself. My name is Wendell and I'm a, I don't know if I can say board certified, but I'm an NDSE certified. I passed the NDSE board exam. Like you're inching your way closer to the full title that you want to get to, but it's still (laughs) not there. (laughs) I'm still not there. And First of all, I passed this exam, obviously super, super happy. I can Amazing. work in Canada. I can get my licensure. Just a huge sigh of relief. Yeah. So I, I want to say that for sure. But you mentioned inching and it's so true. And the way I know it's true is because, first of all, I have like 20 more exams still that I have to do. But whenever I explain to the people here, I say, by the way, you're, you know, you're operating with a board certified Canadian oral surgeon. So they're like, oh, congrats. They're like, so was it a written or an oral? So I said, oh, it was a written. And they say, oh, you don't have an oral exam? You're like, well. And, then I, and well, I was like, well, there is an oral exam next year. So then they say, so then you're not board certified. I was like, well, I am, but I still kind of have to do this oral. And it doesn't even make sense when I'm trying to explain you it to them. Leave it to our college to make it difficult. Yeah. It's yeah. like, how do I explain this?
1: And like, honestly, you can't even explain it. You just got to give them little bits by bits as you keep accomplishing things. But this yeah, one, one, is, one this st- one is huge, though. Honestly. Getting that licensure is is a big deal, right? It's a huge weight off your back.
0: Yeah, because, I mean, obviously you want to pass all these exams, but technically, if I fail the American exam, written or oral, if I fail the RCDC oral, I'm still, at least I can work. I'm still working during that time. Your life really doesn't change that much. Exactly. That's why I told people, I said, you know, I got a bunch of exams coming up, but this is the big one. This one determines whether or not I can work and call myself a specialist. So super happy about that and uh, happy we got those results in time for Christmas. So that was a nice little gift. Next thing I want to do is, you know, I want to give a shout out, to Oscar, but this is kind of a weird shout out because Ellen Holzman, who you obviously know, yep. you know, she runs the COMS kind of behind the scenes. She's, she's great. You know, yeah. formerly she's kind of, you know, the COMS. She organizes the conference and all these webinars. Now she's kind of a go-to person yep. for us being the AOMS president. She was our contact person. Without her, the the whole association would crumble. Yeah. Yeah, no, it would fall apart. And actually they kind of show the the executive agrees with that because I remember in Montreal. They made her an honorary member. They didn't even tell her. They surprised her oh, at the awesome. annual general yeah. meeting. Yeah, that's true. Making her an honorary member, and she was shocked. You could tell she had no idea. So she was crying. It was like a really nice thing because, she, as far as I know, she's the only honorary member that's not an oral surgeon. I think so. Yep. So huge honor. Anyways, she listens to the podcast every episode. She's like a a loyal listener. She's a one of the heart. first people to tune. in. Yeah, she's one of the first people to tune in. So we love that. But she commented on our last episode saying that she thought it was great, but she's waiting for her shameless plug. She wants me to give a shameless plug to her. And I was just like, you know, I like that you're listening, but you're clearly not listening close enough because a shameless plug. We discussed this. A shameless plug is about ourselves. Yeah. A shout out is about (laughs) someone else. Exactly. So, Ellen, you you have enough shameless plugs for yourself. (laughs) exactly (laughs) i mean ellen you wanted a shameless plug we can't give that to you but we will give you a shout out so hopefully this is what you wanted and a well-deserved one too well-deserved the next thing we want to talk about is something that's happened actually not recently it was a couple months ago but we hadn't brought it up and it resurfaced in my uh kind of notifications and i thought you know we actually should discuss this because some people might not have seen this but jake tapper who is a cnn i'm shaking my head already uh, yeah, I've seen an anchor, you know, famous CNN an Anchor. He actually made a comment about oral surgeons. And this was, you know, during Trump when he got COVID and he was in the hospital. Then we're waiting for a statement. So we actually have the audio clip. So let's play that now. Now that Trump has tested positive and is showing some symptoms, according to the White House, although we have yet
2: to hear from a doctor from the White House, we should note. And that is needed. A real right. doctor, not an <laughs> oral surgeon. Um People want
0: to know what happens next. So the first thing I'll say is, you know, I thought it was hilarious. Now obviously, you know, it's very offensive and many people were upset about what he said and people actually complained. Acoms made a formal letter complaint. I don't know if you knew that. They they drafted I didn't like actually a, a res- I
1: didn't know that one.
0: Yeah, Acoms they drafted wow. they drafted like a formal letter that they sent to the sent to him or CNN I'm not sure how that works. And he had a formal response or CNN had a formal response saying that, you know, he clarified later blah blah blah. But what did you think of this when you first saw? Because I know it was it was circling around all the residents and the and the oral surgery community. Everyone was kind of laughing at it, but also, you know, people were kind of torn. Are you offended? Do you just think it's funny? How did you feel? So
1: you know me pretty well because we have been friends for a while. You know I'm a pretty easygoing, laid back guy. So to me, I brushed it off. Like I think it's a dumb comment. I think it's an idiot, but I'm not getting worked up over it. Do I think yeah. it's good that we do have people in our profession that get worked up over it? Yes, 100%, because those are the people that are moving our profession forward. If everyone was kind of like me that was laid back and was like, oh, i just say that, we don't really get that notoriety. We don't get that recognition. So I can see why people take offense to it. And I'm happy that there's those people. I wasn't one of them. I kind of just took it as a joke. I'm like, oh, whatever, it doesn't matter to me. He's uneducated. Yeah,
0: I, well, I just think we're also so giddy at the fact that Wow. An oral surgeon got mentioned on CNN, like in prime time. It's like, this is awesome. We're actually people, cause no one knows who there, we are. There's like, our no shutout no right knows. there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Jake yeah. Tapper gave us a shutout and it was a negative shout. Yeah, But yeah, I was kind of more thinking that's pretty cool. And then the other thing was Gally Gally, who is the oral surgeon in uh, LSU, Sharifport, the chair, and he's like the chair of the medical association there. He did one of the Republican convention speeches like about COVID and Trump and his treatment, stuff like that. So I thought it was mind-blowing to see an oral surgeon, you know, at the Republican conference. Like, I thought that was a pretty big deal too. So, you know, not the best notoriety for oral surgeons, but I thought it was still pretty funny.
1: Yeah, again, I think we're similar in opinion on that.
0: Yeah. Moving on, we also had some feedback from a recent journal club that we did on transverse issues and how to manage them in the maxilla. And Miller-Smith, actually, CMS president, reached out saying one thing that we didn't talk about, which is true, and it's probably because the article didn't mention it, but we should have mentioned it, was you can narrow the mandible or expand the mandible. You can also do things in the mandible to address your transverse issues. Now, you can do a midline split and expand or constrict the mandible. I've done that once, did that once at McGill, a a midline split. But I will say the indication is so rare because... You'd have to have a maxilla that was perfectly placed that you're not going to touch. Yeah. Because if you're going to do a LaFort, you're obviously just going to do a segmental LaFort versus a segmental mandible.
1: Like, it, it doesn't make sense in that scenario, except for the scenario that you're specifically talking about. Exactly. Yeah.
0: yeah. So, I think what we would tell the listeners is that what we'd add to that article is that if your maxilla is perfect in every way, aesthetics, transverse, occlusal plane. You don't smile, need you're not, you're not doing a LaFort. Exactly. You don't need double jaw surgery and you're only doing a mandible and it's going to be too wide rather than adding a segmental LaFort, just do a midline uh, osteotomy and narrow the mandible so I think that that was a valuable addition to what That's we great. should discuss in that article Yep. yeah now next thing I need to do is shameless plug Oscar I mean and we've joked about this but I do have one quick shameless plug I I'm need giving to you
1: this year you can do whatever you want this year next year we're <laughs> <Yeah>. starting next,
0: <laughs> next year no more <laughs> I'm calling you out on every single one <laughs> well that works out because you know I've talked before about MR Reed and CT read. I just wanted to quickly mention to our listeners that MRREAD at www.mrread.ca is an online course. It's 100% free and it teaches you from start to finish how to read an MRI of the TMJ, which is something you look at a lot during residency. If you see patients that come in with it during your private practice, you might have to look at it. And yeah, a lot of people just look at the radiologist report, but first of all, the radiologist can be wrong. Second of all, it's good for you to be able to interpret it yourself. If it comes from another institution, you don't have a report. But most importantly, if you know what you're looking at, you can actually just show it to the patient. They gain confidence and you can kind of demonstrate what's going on. So this is a course that will teach you everything you need to know about MRIs of the TMJ. It is currently free because it's uh, on a grant from the AO Foundation. But the way these things work is you have to publish your study results to validate the course. And that's going to be happening in January. So the more people that complete the course... The more valid the data is, the more feedback we get about the course, the better we can make the course. And it makes it more likely that the grant will continue. Therefore, the course will be free forever, which is what we're trying to do. We're trying to make it free forever.
1: And, and I don't think, you know what? This one is, I don't think this is a shameless plug. I think this is completely appropriate. And this is, should be more of a shout out because you're helping people. So I went to a program that did a lot of TMJ stuff. And I looked at this and I think it's a great, great online course. So everyone should do it, even if you think you're well versed in it just take the course. It's really, really good. So I don't count this as a shameless plug at all. you get a to pass on this one.
0: Perfect. So I, I get one plus one voucher yeah, for next exactly. year. <laughs> so yeah, people can check out the course and if, if you can complete it by the end of this year, that would be really, really helpful. Obviously if December is too busy for you or, or you know, you're not able to get it done, that's fine. But it, if you get it done by December 31st, we, we can include your feedback and your data in the study, which would be really helpful. And I would say residents, obviously, you should be taking it. Private practice people that struggle with MRIs of TMJ, you should obviously be taking it. But even if you think you know how to read a t- uh, TMJ MRI, you might just be looking at, oh, where's the disc? Exactly. I think this is what it is. You know, we talk about tons of other stuff degenerative changes, effusions, you know, all these different things. So I really think you should check out the course. And if you, you know, get a couple modules in and you don't like it, then you can stop. But I guarantee that once you start it, you're really, really going to like it. And honestly, you could do the entire course in one day. So that's. The end of my kind of MRE plug. And I, you know what? Maybe, some, maybe that's just what it is. It's just a plug. It's yeah, not that's, a shameless that's what I'm saying. Plug. It's not a
1: shameless It's useful it's for people. So this one, like 100%.
0: This was just a plug. Yeah. That's, that's how we, we'll, we'll eventually, as we get more and more along, we'll we'll kind of have a gradient for what is what.
1: Yeah, there'll be things i will call you up completely and other ones will be like, no, that one, that one was useful. Yeah,
0: yeah, exactly. So the next thing I want to discuss about current events is I have a ton of stuff to discuss regarding current cases or things that have been going on during my fellowship. Now, you know, I'm not oblivious to the fact that I obviously talk about the fellowship a lot in this podcast, but I realized why when I was prepping for this episode. And the first thing is the segment's called current events. Well, I'm currently doing a fellowship. Obviously, all my current events are going to be related to that.
1: This is our life currently, right? So this is what we're talking about at the beginning. So just because you are talking about a lot is because that's what makes up most of your life currently.
0: Exactly. It's all my time is spent on this pretty much right now. But the other thing I like about it is in a fellowship, you'll operate the most. You'll have the most kind of cases to discuss. But also, you know, we're big on this podcast on telling the listener that we're new to oral surgery. We're new surgeons. You're new to private practice. I'm new to a fellowship. So I really, really feel like we can kind of explain our struggles or our questions in a way that's super relatable to either residents or new grads. And then the veteran surgeons will say, oh, I remember how that felt, or oh, this is the best way to deal with that. And I have some of that when it comes to this. So the first thing is, you know, what's nice about fellowship right now is, in the November, you know, in the fall time, so September, October, November, the orthognathic surgeries slow down because it's not summer Christmas break. And they kind of call it TMJ time. The TMJ surgeries start to ramp up. So I've actually been working with John Nail and Dan Cook, who are two of the guys here at the practice that do a ton of TMJ stuff, doing a lot more TMJ. And I know you went to a really heavy, strong TMJ program. At McGill, we did arthrocentesis, we did joint replacements not much in between i would say yeah whereas here i've been doing a lot of arthroscopies which i would never done before level one two and three so not just like looking in yeah like doing something yeah do you agree i mean a level one arthroscopy where you go and you look and you lavage you should have just done an arthrocentesis in my opinion i don't think it adds anything
1: yeah as long as Uh,
0: okay let me put it this way it doesn't add anything if you cannot then do more, like that, if you that, had and to. And that's that's what I was going
1: to say. I was trying to word it properly because if you have the ability yeah. to then do something else, then yes, oh, yeah, it yeah. does.
0: Yeah, okay. exactly. Yeah. Sorry, that's I should have put it that way. A level one is only good if you are capable of doing level two and three. Otherwise, you're not going to do anything about what you see. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's my opinion. Whereas here they do level one, two, and three. So I've never done that before. So I'm doing a lot of that, which is very challenging. It's kind of like laparoscopic, so oh. you have to figure out how to use a camera and everything. It's very difficult. So shout out to all the people that do. It's impressive,
1: if you can do it well, the people who do it well, it's very impressive.
0: Well, what's funny is, and I'm sure you went through this, is they let you enter, you get in, you're just so happy you got in the joint, and then you start moving around. Yeah. And, and then you're like, like okay, where am I? Well, you're, well, you have no idea yeah. where you are. And then they say, that you know, this is the interior, like, okay, and like, I want you to do an interior capsulotomy to release the disc. So you they're like, take the laser, you know, buzz from here to here. So you're like, that's so easy, it's a line. And then you're trying and you're fumbling and it's taking you forever. And then they let you struggle along, And then eventually, you know, the case needs to move along, so they say. Let me just finish up here, and then they take over, and it's like it's like it's like, it's like yeah. You're like we're, so fast. We're like,
1: was I using my feet? Like, what was going on? Yeah, there?
0: yeah, exactly. Yeah. And you have to learn to use your left hand a lot more, which is which is challenging for these fine movements. So yeah, it's been cool. Lots of joint replacements, lots of arthroscopy, and lots of open arthroplasty, which I really like as a procedure. Yeah. I realized I really like open arthroplasty. Good practice on the preauricular incision. I think we've mentioned this before, but they don't have custom zimmer biomet here in the states it's not approved oh. yet i think they're working on approval so you either have to do stock uh zimmer biomet which no one really does anymore or you have to do tmj concepts which is hmm. the custom yeah but it's different it's you know at uft you did all custom zimmer biomet yeah like i and we would do i was the same very at very small amount of stock like very small
1: but 98 okay. percent was was custom Biomet
0: okay so yeah i've never seen a stock and all i did was custom zero environment so i was kind of because it's kind of similar to where you have a virtual plan yeah you, know, you can get some cutting guides everything kind of slots nicely you have these demo things not the case with tmj concepts it's oh. really just kind of manual you do manual measurements you do a cut without a cut there's no cutting guide you seat the fossa and the prosthesis yourself it's very different
1: uh, i'm not gonna lie i don't like the sound of that
0: it's funny when i first saw my first case i was like this this is, to me, this is pretty much stock because yeah, that's you what have it sounds to manually like to put it in. Yeah, you have to manually cut and everything, but it's not stock because it's indexed to the patient's anatomy. So if you put it in the right spot, it does have like kind of an area it yeah. fits in. Okay. The difference is you don't have cutting guides with like um, predictive holes. So it's not like you fix it, your cutting guide, do your cut and then take it off and put your prosthesis on and just use the same holes. Mm you manually see the fossa so the biggest deal of every procedure is always see the prosthesis superiorly posteriorly in the fossa and everyone's looking and making sure you do one screw then you kind of looking to double check cuz you only have one shot to yeah. do it yeah it's very different to what i thought it was cuz you know i heard custom team j concepts they seemed everything just kind of guided but the difference is it's custom it's not guided
1: that's funny i would not have pictured that especially cuz so like you're doing all these other things with your orthographic training that is so custom and so guided yeah <laughs> That is so yeah. different than what we do here, right? And now yeah. that almost seems a little backwards compared to what we're doing.
0: I agree, but many people have said that as soon as Zimmer Biomet the custom one comes to the states, because it's just so much easier to use and so much quicker. I think a lot of people will just switch to that. But it's nice. There's an art to doing this without any cutting guides. And yeah. it, what's nice is I think it trains you better if you had to do a stock because you know you won't have these guides and stuff. And also, it requires you know more thinking, thinking about it and surgical planning. So. Yeah. Yeah, it's been a a new experience, but it's it's been quite nice doing that. So that was that was kind of an update on doing a lot more TMJ surgery right now. The next thing is had an orbital fracture trauma case. And, you know, we had done a bunch of orbits this year, but, you know, via the transantral approach. I don't know if you've ever done an orbit that way uh, where you go through the sinus versus like your normal eye approaches. No, realistically,
1: no. We talk about it all the time in our discussions at, at like our Ontario oral surgery meeting. We had a, uh, one of the residents present on that, but I haven't done one that way.
0: Yeah, I'd never seen her done one either. But, you know, that's, that's a discussion for another time, just like what the transantral is, and the benefits of that. It's a very nice procedure, I will say, though, to add to your armamentarium, if you can become comfortable with it. But this was, you know, your traditional orbital floor fracture with a medial wall component, transconjunctival, retroceptal, just your normal run-of-the-mill So, you know, we have a resident, so you want the resident to do it. You're watching them do it. But the feeling I had was the first time in a while, I've just felt so uncomfortable during a procedure because I find when it comes to orthognathic or trauma, like in the mandible, you can have a tough case, you can struggle. But what happens is you end up either not having as great a result as you wanted, but you know what your result was, or you have a great result. It just took you way longer and you're exhausted. Whereas with the orbit, the resin did a great job, you know, exposing uh, the approach, everything was great. And then we see the fracture, we're trying to get the plate in, you know, you struggle, you try and see the plate and then you're like, is this in the right spot? And then, you know, you're paranoid about the posterior stop. So you're like, I wanna make sure I have yeah. my, pos- my posterior stop. So you're measuring, you're taking your number nine, you're pushing down on the posterior stop, you're taking your malleable, you're pushing down. And I was just thinking like, I think we nailed this posterior stop. I feel like I have a stop and if if I'm wrong, then I don't know what a posterior yeah. stop is supposed to feel like because yeah. this is what I, I, I thought I be. had it. Like this is it. I thought I thought I had it. If anything's wrong, I know for sure I got my posterior stop, but then I'm like the medial, the whole medial wall is fractured. So you're looking at this, you know, kls uh the 3d plates that are like pre-contoured so it goes up the medial wall yeah. so you're like okay that looks right but is that you know because you've all seen those scans where the medial wall goes like all the way to the nose like or right all the way angle out into the eye yeah yeah exactly yeah so you want to avoid that and then on the lateral it seemed high to us but when we fixed the lateral the medial seemed wrong so it was first time in a while i just felt very unsure of the I, result we were going to deliver. I, I was
1: looking for the word that like, that you would say, and that's, I was going to say uncomfortable, but yeah, unsure yeah. is a perfect word. We're like in, in a lot of surgeries. Now you've been doing it so much. You feel like, you know what? It may not be perfect, but I know why it's not perfect. Or I know where yeah. the mistake is. This is more like it may be right, but I'm, it may not be as good as I yeah. think it is. Yeah. yeah.
0: And it's the eye. So you're oh, way more oh. like sensitive yeah. and you know that you're going to get instant feedback afterwards yeah. With the post-operative CT scan. It's funny because this is my first time where I said, man, everyone raised about intra CT. And I, I think it's amazing too. But if I had an intra CT here, oh, wheel it in, I'm going to We'd be doing know. it for sure. Yeah, it's like I, I instantly know. But I kind of like the fact that I didn't have it because that's similar in Canada. We don't have that. Yeah. So you can't recreate that experience of just pure insecurity, not knowing if you did a good job, knowing do I have to go back, do I have to revise? One thing I will say for you know everyone else that's new to it or the residents is that we did a force suction at the end, which is at least something you want to do because that way you can rule out that afterwards, where if they're having some mobility problems with the eye, or like, well, I know I did a force suction, I know I checked for entrapments, so at least I can rule that out. Mm-hmm. But I was nervous, so to get to the end, we did, we finished, we we both said, listen, we're happy at the posterior stop. We know that's good for us. We think the medial is well good. And we know the lateral, it's, it's not good. It's not resting perfect on it. But we'll accept it because that's the least important part. Got the CT scan. And what's nice is it reflected what we thought, which is the posterior stop was perfect. The medial was perfect. The lateral was too high. But you so know, you know it what? It, it didn't curve down onto the lateral.
1: It reassures that you knew what you were seeing, right? And sometimes yeah. that's as much as you can ask for. Like, that's a great learning experience right there that, you know what? Now you can trust your judgment more next time
0: exactly because i think if it was totally off i would have felt really oh. uncomfortable with like yeah mm, yeah maybe i'm not that great at this or yeah. how do i you know this you'd be more gun shy the next time you have an orbital floor for sure for sure so at least this time i know i can i can do the orbital floor just got to work on that lateral and making sure it's contoured everywhere and what you're seeing intra-op it's it's going to show up exactly the same on the ct scan if you see something's off then kind of work trim the plate do something else to make it better adapted so it was an uncomfortable feeling, I will say. I think that's a great learning experience. Again, it gives you confidence for the next
1: time. You saw what you thought was going to be wrong, and it showed it. That was the exact same thing that was wrong.
0: Yeah. The last thing I want to talk about as far as update on fellowship cases and stuff, I've told you a lot about how December here is considered you know, the craziest month of the year. Yeah. It's the busiest month for jaw surgery. And with COVID, a lot of cases that would have happened, you know, spring, summer got pushed until December is what Farrell told us. So... The bookings have been coming in. And I, I will say, you know, no spoilers because in January, we'll review the December numbers and December yeah. month. But let me just put it to you this way. We're recording this on a Saturday. This upcoming week, I have 16 jaws to cut. And I don't mean 16 cases or there's 16 jaws total. I mean, I am physically doing yeah. the 16. Just I'm you. not counting the staff or the resident, things like that. You know, it's like literally I will be cutting 16 and it's just mental what's going on right now. So excited it's a different to talk animal out there. Yeah, especially December. They they didn't lie. Like December is just wild. So in January, I'll give a recap, but I just want to talk about one of the cases that we did this past week. So we did a bilateral IVRO. Now, another procedure, a typical mandibular osteotomy. I did one of them. Shout out to Nicholas McCullough. We did one together in residency, but never done it other than that how about you no no like again really not done at all yeah so you know for the residents ivro intraoral vertical ramus osteotomy you know the textbook teaching is if you're doing a setback and especially if it's a large setback and the mandible from a cemental vertex point of view is v-shaped you want to do an ivro if it's u-shaped you want to do a BSSO. This is just based on the interference you'll have and how the proximal segment, and distal segment seat against each other. You can ask, you know, your senior resident to draw your diagram and explain it to you. But even then, most setbacks we still do a BSSO. We're yeah. really comfortable with it. You can remove the interferences. It's you know you don't really see people with V-shaped mandibles that often. So this one, you know, we had uh, had a case that was a 22 millimeter negative overjet. Let's just say the decompensation got a little bit out of hand here wow
1: that person turned the corner twice the mandible and then the rest I, of the
0: face yeah exactly <laughs> exactly wow. so we had negative 22 millimeters so the anterior segment so can to can was just totally flared out like crazy flared out so what we did was bilateral IVRO to set back the mandible 10 millimeters and then an anterior subapical so just distill the canine down underneath the anterior segment and up to the canine to upright that segment, kind of like you would with a segmental lefort, yeah, to upright yeah. the interior incisors. Yeah. We did the same thing with the lower incisors. Absolutely wild. And then brought the maxilla forward. I can't remember if it was 10 or 14. I can't remember what the maxilla had to do. So we did that case and I think the number one reason people don't do IVROs, besides maybe lack of training or not being comfortable, is you, you know the classic teachings you have to wire them shut yeah. afterwards and allow the segment to heal because you're pretty much inducing a fracture that you can't fixate. We fixated it you have an overlap, we put a trocar in and you put three screws along yeah. the proximal segment, bicortical into the distal segment. You got good overlap because it's such a large setback. We fixated it, so there was no MMF afterwards. Am I missing something here?
1: Yeah, no, and I think in that case specifically, you're dro- you're dropping it back 10 millimeters. You know you're gonna have a good overlap there.
0: So that's perfect. Mm. Yeah. So if it was la- if it was like a three millimeter setback, you probably might not have enough to fix it there is what you're saying.
1: Yeah, like we are talking about you did the arthroscopy with those fine movements, you're gonna miss that three
0: millimeter? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So I think in a large setback case, it was really nice. We just fixated it and then did the subapical. The, the subapical, you know, once you get into, if, if you're comfortable doing segmental maxillary surgery, you're going to be comfortable doing segmental mandibular surgery. The only thing you got to worry about is the mental nerve, obviously. Yeah. But this was amazing because since it was distal to canine, to distal to canine, there's no nerve, there's nothing. You're you not not tetraplasty approach, boom, make a little box and upright it. It was really, really smooth. So that was really nice. And, The maxilla now, (laughs) 15-millimeter expansion of the palate. Oh. Yeah. So your surgical approach is exactly the same. You just have to make sure to spread it really well. Here, we use the Smith spreaders at the back to kind of just like, you know, spread and kind of, you know, distract it open, distract it open. Yeah. Two things that really saved us, I would say. One was this orthodontist put bands on the molars with tubes on them. So, Farrell, what he did is he put a wire through it and pulled and can laterally. can actually torque them out. yeah. Torque it, like crazy yeah. to torque it out. So, if those molars weren't banded, you're screwed. You can't do that. That's a good Maybe ortho. you could do, well, I'm thinking maybe you could just put a wire kind of um, through the papilla and around the tooth. Kind of like, you know, arch bar style and then pull the tooth. But the buckled tube with that band, you just pull it out. And without that, we wouldn't be able to see it in the splint. So, that was clutched by the orthodontist. And the second thing was... We got, you know, the palatal inserts you can get for expansion cases. Like instead of wiring the splint in, you can yep. just put the palatal kind of strap. Yeah. We got one of those that was a little bit bulky. So you put that in post ops So that helps, I think will help maintain the expansion. Really, I'm well. actually,
1: I'm excited to hear how that case goes and not really like the, the mandible. Yeah, it's exciting. But that 15 millimeters, that's a lot.
0: Yeah. See if she if she relapses, gets an open bite. At the 24-hour post-op follow-up, everything was great, but we'll see, you know, one, three weeks, five weeks. We'll, we'll see how nice. she does for sure. Because obviously she's the type of case, you know, we took tons of photos for, you have all the records. She's the type of case you'd want to present and like talk about management in the future. So for sure. we definitely documented that like crazy. So that was it for current events for me, for kind of a, a fellowship update, just kind of going into the cases. You know, we have, now we, we have a great interview to jump into. You have said, Oscar, that you think, This might have been one of your favorite interviews ever that we've done.
1: Yeah. Like I was so impressed when I say our interview, I don't mean me and you part of our interview because I'm not impressed by you anymore. I talk to you all the time. (laughs) Um, I I was impressed about the person we interviewed. I thought he was so well-spoken, not just on an oral surgery level, but on a life level. And and I think in the times that we're going through right now, I think it's important. You have, I told you before this year, I'm kind of living vicariously through you because you have all these new experiences. I shouldn't really complain because we're privileged. We have a great job, like doing oral surgery. We have a great profession, but being here in Canada, a lot of us who are in the profession are getting a little bit burnt out because all we're doing is going to work, going home, going to work and going home mm. with, with this lockdown. And, and I know, again, we shouldn't really complain because other people have suffered major losses, but hearing his perspective on life was a very impressive conversation I thought we had with him.
0: Yeah, so we have Dr. Mark Engelstad. He is from Portland, Oregon, program director over there for the oral surgery department at O H S U. And the reason we asked him to come on is he did mandible fracture lecture for the IAOMS a few years ago. And we talked about the lecture a lot during the interview. And we'll provide a link to that lecture in the show notes of this podcast. The last time I listened to it, it was freely available online. So we'll definitely put a link to that. But what we loved about him in the lecture is it was a very, you know, upfront, honest discussion of mandible fractures and current controversies or treatment questions that everyone always has and are always discussed and just his approach and a very logical unbiased unemotional approach to solving these problems so I really loved our discussion with him I will say for junior residents you know you really need to know about mandible fractures and maybe have experienced them first to understand some of the things we're talking about and why they're controversial or why it's a big deal But definitely from senior resident all the way to staff and people that have been working private practice and and academics for years and years, you're definitely going to enjoy this interview. So thanks so much to Mark for joining us. And let's jump into our interview with Dr. Mark Engelstad. All right, Oscar, happy to have our special guest in the studio. Now, please welcome Dr. Mark Engelstad. Now, Mark, we like to introduce people a little bit differently on this podcast you know when you go for lectures and you know you're at a conference they always list all your degrees all your publications everything you're associated with and it goes on for you know five minutes and at the end of it people are kind of left wondering who the hell this person is so what we do is very simple we just say this is Mark he's the program director at OHSU which is the oral surgery program in Portland Oregon and he knows a lot about trauma and that's why we brought him on so Mark how's it going
2: that's a perfect introduction it's going well Thanks for inviting me, Wendell and Oscar. This is really exciting, and uh, kudos to you guys for putting this together. I think this this long-form format of listening to people is really effective in surgery, and it's not done very often, so this is great.
1: Thanks for joining us. Really, we should be thankful for you coming on.
0: Yeah, and I mean, you mentioned that it's not really done that often, and that's why we wanted to do this for sure, but you also mentioned the long-form format. Is that kind of a subtle jab at... The fact that our episodes are getting longer and longer over time.
2: <laughs> they were. I did I did have to take a little break last time when I listened to you guys. We don't blame you. Um, we don't yeah. blame you. Yeah. I was getting hypothyrocemia. So no, you have it's good. You haven't been before. It's nice.
0: So as I mentioned, Mark, the main reason we wanted to bring you on was you actually, you know, you, you lecture with AO, you lecture at a lot of conferences, you know a lot about trauma. But specifically, you had one particular lecture about mandibular trauma that was given to the International Association, the IAOMS. And basically it was, you know, mandible fractures, you're 20 years of experience. So the first thing I'll say is I'm currently in fellowship. I haven't even, you know, entered the real world yet and graduated from my education. Oscar is a year and a half out. He's a little bit more experienced than I, but just to even conceptually think about having 20 years of experience in anything oral surgery related, That's the first thing that jumped out to Oscar and I and something we wanted to talk to you about.
2: Yeah. So, you know, they say it takes 10 years to know when not to operate, which is, you know, the thing that's hardest to learn. But I still find myself relearning old lessons and discovering new truths all the time. I love treating injuries of all the things that I do as a maxillofacial surgeon. I love injuries the most because you get the most immediate gratification and patients are always so grateful and you get the satisfaction of restoring uh, things that that are broken. You have technical problems and a lot of interesting technical tools, yet it's rarely life-threatening. You, know, you mentioned that I had spent time with AO and I guess I want to give them a little shout out as an organization because they really helped me work a lot with other specialties in the United States for sure and actually internationally. Most of the maxillofacial trauma expertise lies in with oral and maxillofacial surgery. I don't think the other fields would would dispute that. But each, you know, otolaryngology and oculoplastics and plastic surgery—they all have their their quirky people who are really interested in maxillofacial trauma, and it's a lot of fun to work with them and hear different ideas and different approaches. And you know, being involved with any kind of organization will help you build. A skill set and an ability to, to lecture. And I'll tell you, one of the things that really made my career with them was the fact that I had a lot of photographs. I was a, a really careful photo taker early in my career, not just pulling out the photo when you know something was interesting, but routinely taking images before, during, and after. You wouldn't believe how hard it is to be asked to give a talk and just give a visual representation of even the most benign thing that you think, oh gosh, you know, just an angle fracture in a body, you know, I've done so many of those, how hard can that be? And you'll go through your image library and you just won't have the pictures. You'll have some pre-ops, some intra-ops from somebody else, a CT from another patient and a post-op that doesn't exist. My library of images was really crucial for me being a teacher i'd recommend that to anybody starting out
1: and i think that's so proactive especially nowadays because you see everybody posting everyone taking all these pictures but yeah before it probably wasn't as normal
2: to have all these pictures be taken so that that's a great point yeah it was a little harder and now i, I mean honestly most of the time in the or i'm probably using my iphone yeah exactly that. yep and the images are just yeah. as good as the images i used you know from a high quality camera 10 years ago
0: exactly definitely becoming easier and easier So one of the main, you know, kind of themes in your lecture that you gave is to talk about these key points when it comes to mandibular trauma. And what's nice is these are a lot of, you know, philosophical questions and controversies that exist when treating mandibular trauma. And I thought your way of approaching them and kind of explaining them shows kind of your educational background and the fact that you're used to teaching. So we want to run through some of these key points for the benefits of our listenership, a lot, pretty much all of which have either previously treated mandibular trauma are currently treating mandibular trauma or are going to treat mandibular trauma. It's one of the most common things an oral surgeon does. So let's run through these. The first key point is intermaxillary fixation requires compliance. It does not provide compliance. Can you explain what you mean by that?
2: We use this term IMF to mean so many different things or maxillomandibular fixation and really there are two different core things we're after one the first core thing we're after when we try these techniques is the reduction of our mandible fracture so we want to bring the fractured ends in a better alignment with each other that's the first thing we do so there's fracture alignment or fracture reduction that's the first reason we do these things and the second use is immobilization So we want to minimize the movement of the the jaw in some way afterwards. So we've got, you know, reduction as one quality and immobilization as another. And I usually, I'll usually, instead of saying IMF, I'll usually say I want to immobilize the mandible or I want to reduce the fracture because IMF is kind of like all of those things. But let's talk about IMF in terms of it being like Eric arch bars, for instance. You know, that's the classic intermaxillary fixation. Arch bars placed on teeth a wire dutifully wrapped around, you know, teeth from molar to molar as much as possible. And then, you know, afterwards leaving the operating room with some kind of immobilization, you know, not so much alignment because presumably our internal fixation has already aligned and reduced the fracture. So when somebody uses IMF after, you know, uh, it lets the patient leave the operating room with their jaws wired shut, what they're looking for is immobilization. So let's back up to the the surgery part. So when we put on arch bars and we wire the teeth together, what we're trying to do is align the bone of the mandible. You know, we're trying to align the mandible all the way from the alveolar process down to the inferior border. But putting heavy gauge metallic strips on the teeth and then wiring them together is a very imprecise way to achieve alignment of the fracture. And as often as not, the arch bar actually makes reducing the fracture harder, not easier. Fractures need to be aligned. There needs to be a lot of give and play with aligning a fracture. And when we put an arch bar across a fracture, it just creates this really heavy obstacle that makes fine movement of our fractures in close alignment more difficult rather than easier. So when it comes to aligning fractures, if an arch bar is going to help us, then that means that that fracture is probably somewhere in the dentate part of the mandible, right? The fracture is probably in the body or the symphysis. So the good thing is that in that part of the mandible, we can use compression forceps instead of arch bars. So if if, if you're putting an arch bar on to reduce the fracture, what you could do instead is just drill a hole through the cortex on either side of the fracture and then put a compression clamp across that fracture preloading it with perfect compression where you can see every osteocyte interdigitate with the osteocyte across the fracture with it and know that your alignment is is absolutely as perfect as you can make it then you apply your internal fixation on that perfectly reduced and perfectly preloaded fracture using arch bars to do that is just not nearly as precise and like i said if you've got a double fracture like a, a symphysis and an angle, that means that you've got a free-floating segment in between. And now that arch bar can really tilt things and cause all kinds of movements of that segment that don't align and actually frustrate your alignment. So it wouldn't be so bad if arch bars, you know, didn't always, you know, didn't also involve you know a lot of wires and you know, it's a great way to get hepatitis or if you ever wanted to, maybe, <laughs> you know, have the experience of getting a liver transplant, that's probably in our field the, the, the fastest way to get there, you know, and and it's funny, you know, there are, there are all these attendings who say, oh, I love to put on arch bars, but you'll you'll notice that they're not the ones putting them on and they're never the ones taking them <laughs> off, right? Uh, so most of the value in our, our repairs is with the internal fixation. And my old professor, well, I want to give a shout out to Dr. Brian Alpert and George Kushner, who taught me surgery at the University of Louisville. You know, they would always say, if you're going to take the operate, the, if you're going to put on internal fixation, then the, then give the patient more than a scar. In other words, give them function afterwards. Let them use their jaw. Let them work with it. And so, if I do need some kind of immobilization of my jaw, or maybe I've got a condyle fracture I didn't treat, then I'm probably just using you know, an IMF screw or maybe just a small segment of arch bar or something like that. The shorter answer is, you know, arch bars are really heavy instruments that are clunky to put on and, you know, they force the patient into multiple operations. They oftentimes make reducing the fracture harder and immobilizing the jaw is probably not necessary if you have internal fixation on. One little exercise I always encourage people to do to understand why immobilizing the jaw isn't really nice is, is to just put your own teeth together, you know, for a while. And, you know, with the, with the neural feedback of the human masticatory system, when you bring the teeth together, patients tend to want to clench. It's just part of the trigeminal system and the feedback system where, you know, at rest, our teeth are not touching. Really the only time our teeth should ever touch is when we're, when we're chewing or when we're swallowing. So, When your teeth are wired together, you're in this constant sort of swallowing, chewing feedback, and you actually do a lot of grinding. And So if you just bring your own teeth together for a while like that, and then swallow your own secretions just once, and feel the forces across your mandible, and then if you let your mandible hang nice and passive and relaxed and swallow your secretions again, you can feel how there's almost no force across your mandible. So I think wiring people together actually just increases forces across the jaw. Uh, It doesn't. It's not like us. It's we. We think it's like putting a broken arm in a sling, but it's not. It's more like you know somebody grabbing you and pinning you on the ground. Like all you want to (laughs) do is fight that person. You know, I'm not a big fan.
1: But it's funny that you say that. You brought up that point right now because when I was listening to your lecture. You, you do talk about that, doing that. And I definitely did that. I'm like, oh, this sucks. This sucks to have your mouth really close shut. And I'm sure when everyone listens to this right now, they're all going to practice it. They're all going to close their teeth tight and be like, I can't really swallow that easily. Like it
2: feels uncomfortable.
0: Imagine doing that for six weeks. Yeah,
1: I couldn't do it for one yeah. minute.
2: Yeah. Yeah. There's nothing about implanting titanium in people's face that changes human behavior. You know, people are going to want to do everything they did, you know, before you did your operation. So I do think, you know, uh, making somebody suffer through intermaxillary fixation requires compliance. It doesn't, you know, there's no, nothing about the, the metal that provides compliance.
1: <laughs> no, and, and, and exactly. I think that's and perfect. I, I, and on that, like, going to, that, that kind of you touched on already our point number two that we were going to talk about, which is there are a few scenarios in which arch bars are more helpful than harmful. I think you touched yeah, about that, kind of that. a follow-up. Exactly. So yeah. I think we should go to our, our next point, which is the success of your repair should not really rely on your patient's compliance. You want to talk about that?
2: Yeah, I like talking about that one a lot. So it's uh, one of the things that as an educator, or just as a surgeon, I guess, I get frustrated a little bit in that, especially in terms of, I don't know if you guys have ever been to a trauma conference. I certainly have. Where there can be in our professional world, a little bit of judgment of our patients for the decisions that they, they make. In the behaviors that they show as surgeons i think it's beneath us to think this you know if we don't like helping people through the consequences of human behavior then you know why the hell did you go to medical school or dental school you know you're here to help people you're not here to make fun of them when they exhibit behavior that you know statistically exists in society has always ex- existed and will always exist So when people get an injury, you know, that's an opportunity for us to learn to be better surgeons. And we should be respectful to them and we should thank them for it. And uh, instead of sort of, you know, sometimes looking down on them, like I've seen so many times in trauma conferences. So when we repair our mandible fractures. We should not assume that human behavior is going to change because we have titanium on their jaw now right titanium doesn't change human behavior so if you were an engineer and you were making a bridge and just like a surgeon who's repairing a mandible and you wanted that construct to be stable you the engineer would think okay what could happen here well the temperature could get really hot you know, there might be a traffic jam, you know, yeah, I want to build a bridge that's ready for, you know, regular traffic. But what if there's a traffic jam and there's cars parked on the bridge for three hours? And what if every one of those cars is a semi-truck that's fully loaded? And then what if there's a small earthquake at that time? The engineer would build all of that into their construction. They wouldn't, you know, if the, if the bridge collapsed on a hot day with a traffic jam, they wouldn't say, well, holy smokes. You know, I just didn't think it was likely that that would happen, you know. And when we, as surgeons, when we as surgeons look at our patients and they come back to the clinic and there is an outcome we don't like, there is always, and I mean always, going to be something you can point at in that patient's history recently. That will, if you allow it, give you a free pass on getting better, right? That patient will always have eaten something that's suspicious. Maybe they forgot one of the tablets you prescribed them. You know, maybe they slept wrong someday. We're always going to be looking for something upon which we can hang our hat and absolve ourselves as surgeons of any responsibility for the outcome. But what that does is that it makes improvement on our part impossible. So, you know, doctors are just prediction machines, right? When you apply a therapy to a patient, really what you're doing is you're predicting. That that therapy, that treatment, that construct, that, that set of plates or whatever, is going to give you the result that you will want under the conditions that you anticipate. So if you fail to anticipate that you know people get hungry, or that they get frustrated, or that human beings forget to take t- pills, well, that doesn't say much about your knowledge of human behavior. And doctors should first and foremost be experts in human behavior because that's the animal that you're treating. One of the analogies I always make is that, you know, we wouldn't think much of a veterinarian who, you know, fixed your dog's leg or something and, you know, later had a problem and you brought him back and the vet said, well, I didn't know the dog was going to be running after balls. I mean, you know, <laughs> that's, yeah, I told you, I mean, you know, so when we blame our patients, we miss the opportunity to improve ourselves. And If you guys ever get the chance, I highly recommend reading a book by Carol uh, Tavris, T-A-V-R-I-S, called Mistakes Were Made But Not By Me. And in that book, she explains a lot of the psychology around a concept called cognitive dissonance, where it's very hard for humans to hold two conflicting beliefs at the same time. If one belief is that I'm an excellent doctor, and the second belief is that this patient had a problem you've got to find a way to reconcile those things. And you have two options. One is to admit there's a problem and you can improve from it. And the other is to blame the problem on the patient. But if you blame the problem on the patient, then you never error correct. And you're doomed to make the same mistake over and over and over again. So you miss the opportunity to improve. If your outcome fails, they come back and they got a non-union or whatever. It's okay to to blame yourself and, and look at it and say, Hey, what could I have done different here? Like Nobody's going to haul you off in a, you know, in a straight jacket for doing that. Just, you know, just uh, say, yeah, it's an opportunity to improve.
1: I think that answer is per that answer they just gave is perfect. At least to me, not on just an educational level, but on a personal level of just learning how to be a better person in general. Like the first statement you made there is, Why are we judging these patients because they got a fracture? Why are we putting stereotypes on them? Because I'm sure we've all had it at some point in our training where you're like, oh, this guy's likely going to get another fracture. Oh, this guy's likely going to get infected. But you're almost building in the ability to make a mistake because when it comes back, it wasn't your fault. It was the patients. And so the answer you just gave is amazing. It's saying not just just to treat the treatment, or treat, but you're treating the person and understanding that they are going to have faults and you have to account for those. And it's your work that matters.
2: Yeah. One, one great exercise is to, uh, to do, to get over this when the problem comes back to the clinic and it's, you know, a wide open incision and pus is pouring out and there's a non-union success has a thousand fathers and failure is always an orphan. So nobody wants to take credit at that time, but the time to do it is in the operating room. So if you, if you're doing a case and you're sitting around with your residents or you're attending, you should ask yourself, so if this fails, how is it going to fail? That's called a pre-mortem, rather than a post-mortem, and that allows you to be a smart prognosticator of the future, rather than somebody who's trying to run away from, you know, maybe yeah. some suboptimal decision making. So try the pre-mortem; it's kind of fun. How will this fail? Everybody gets to. That's a good tip. Yeah, you know.
0: Def, definitely a good tip for me. How is it going to fail? I let the resident do too much of the surgery. That's the okay, yeah, that, let's head into key it point number helps four. always to have a resident. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. Because if you operate alone, who are you going to blame? Like that nurse, That's right? That nurse gave me the wrong screws. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. exactly. You, you need a scapegoat. Yeah. One of my old staff—I won't name names—used to say, "Are you going to make the cut here?" And I would say, "Yes." He says, "Okay, it's your decision." I have now absolved myself <laughs> of all <the> responsibility <laughs> of this patient's care.
2: <laughs> uh, it is a death.
0: But uh, that staff—that staff will listen and know who they are. So, key point number four. The goal of mandible fracture repair is to restore form in a stable construct. I know this kind of ties into what you meant from an engineering point of view, but can right. you just elaborate a little bit on, on what that means?
2: Yeah, it's just that we get into what that means is that there's lots of algorithms or there's lots of uh, decision trees on yeah, how to like, treat things. Yeah, like belief systems out there. Like, you know, you've got the, you know, Shampey belief system and the rigid construction belief system and these other paradigms, you know, almost like religions, you know, for treating a fracture. And, and really, you know, one of the advantages of getting older uh, is that you start to see things with a little bit more simplicity by casting off what you initially, when you're starting out in your career, the problem is you don't know what's necessary and what's not necessary. You are like a chef starting out in the kitchen where you're following recipes And you're most comfortable in making sure that you read the recipe and use all the ingredients. And then as you get older, you realize that, you know, that one ingredient actually was unnecessary and should have been replaced by this third ingredient. And you start to be able to, to be comfortable riffing on things. Also, as you get older, your reputation is a little bit more solid and you're not as, you know, you don't have to worry about losing it by making mistakes. So these are all just human nature things that, you know, there's some, at least there's some advantages to getting older. I think... It can be simplified when you think about mandible fractures. It's just your job is to make the jaw the same size and shape it was before the injury happened and to put fixation on the fractures in a way that holds it in its pre-morbid size and shape. So you want to put it back in the same shape and you want to make that stable. Bones will heal in the jaw all day long, as long as there's stability between the osteocytes on either side of the fracture. Just make the jaw the same size and shape it was, because in nature, that's obviously the optimal size and shape. We we don't want to force the patient to adapt to a new jaw shape. Uh, We want to give them the one that they had. And uh, really, that's always your goal. Restore the form because nature had it right in the first place. Yeah, and that, that's
1: another point that, again, and we keep going back to your lecture that was online, because we both, like when was saying we both watched it, that was an also a point that stood out when you're looking when you're watching the lecture live, where, yeah, people can adapt quite well, but why force them to adapt if you can get them back to where they were beforehand? So I think that's very important.
2: Yeah, I'll talk a little bit about that more when we talk about condyle fractures, because that's the, the place where we're always forcing patients to adapt. Yep, yep. And, and so that would
1: get us to key point five that we want to talk about was, where double fractures are more than twice as complicated as two single fractures to treat.
0: Yeah, and I, I will I, say this is something that I'm actively <laughs> learning because as I see more and more trauma patients and I'm staffing them, yeah. um, you you do see where you get so comfortable with these parasymphysial fractures or these angle fractures. And then when the one that comes in that's, you know, parasymphysis plus contralateral angle, you're just like, oh, these are two easy fractures. I know how to do them both. And things just don't go as smooth, and it's harder to get things to line up and the occlusion. I have been experiencing this firsthand.
2: Definitely. I was just, you know, struggling with one earlier, like last week, a uh, uh, parasympathesis and then an angle. <clears throat> but uh, the key point really should say that double fractures are more complicated than two single fractures i I realized my wording was a little bit odd double fractures are more complicated than two single fractures and really i got this understanding mostly from ed ellis who has a, a great way of making complicated things seem simple and um a double fracture so if you have a single fracture there's only one way that the bone can go together You're just, it's like closing a door, right? There's only one way the door closes, right? It's on the hinge and closes. And oftentimes in a single fracture, frankly, it doesn't matter too much what kind of fixation you put on there, as long as you got good compression between the segments. I'm not saying it doesn't matter, but you've got a lot more latitude for errors. But when you have a double fracture, now you have a free segment that exists between the two fractures. And any error that you make in the reduction and fixation of the first fracture <clears throat> is going to be magnified 10 times in the second fracture. And that's why, so so first of all, the segment twists and rotates in ways that are weird. So the door is not on two hinges and closing nicely. The door is only on one hinge, and it's flopping all over the place, right? You're trying <laughs> to close it. And, uh, and then if you get the first fracture wrong, You will, the the second fracture has no hope of aligning. So uh, you have to have a a tolerance uh, a lot finer for the first fracture when you do double fractures. And that first fracture, the way I always encourage people to think about it is put enough fixation on so that the first fracture essentially doesn't exist anymore. You know, make sure your fixation is such if you have a double fracture, make sure your fixation on the first fracture, which is which should usually be the most anterior. And the reason it's more anterior is because it's easier to see. And if it's easier to see, it's easier to do. All surgery is easy to do. If you can see if you're clipping an aneurysm at the skull base, there's only one reason that's hard because you can't get to it. Right. Yeah. Otherwise, your, your child could do it. Right. So all surgery is a function, my, my, my <laughs> absolute <of> <laughs> yeah. Lennox, you're I up She's that young. <laughs> I was of three year old. But uh, <laughs> but all surgery is a function of your visualization. So anyway, you can see more in the anterior mandible, you can do more. Place enough fixation so that first fracture no longer exists in your mind. It's like you're you're done. You fixed it. And now you're dealing with only a single fracture. And then you can treat that, you know, with freedom.
0: Absolutely. So key point number six, we kind of talked about already as well. It's don't blame the patient for your bad outcomes. Be radically honest with yourself and criticize your own outcomes. Malocclusion in the OR will be a malocclusion in clinic. This one I really liked just because I feel like our mindset when it comes to different types of surgeries is radically different. So if you do orthognathic surgery and you do a double jaw, And then they come back to and everything's great. And then they come back to clinic and everything's great. And then, you know, two weeks, three weeks later, things are starting to shift in the occlusion. You're taking an x-ray, you're looking for hardware failure, you're looking for all these different things. And all of a sudden it becomes a discussion and everyone loves to figure out what went wrong. What does a midline to the left mean? What does a class three tendency mean? What does an open bite at the pre- premolars mean? What can an orthodontist solve? What can they not solve? What did we do? What did we not do? And it's like a great learning experience. Everyone wants to figure it out. And this is like, you know, someone that underwent elective functional slash cosmetic surgery. And then you take someone with a bilateral mandible fracture and they come in with a malocclusion and instantly it's like, whoa, yeah, this person didn't do a liquid diet. They didn't put. They didn't keep the elastics. It's always the sure, elastics. Sure. And the elastic broke. The bite's yeah. the bite's gonna re- settle.
1: The bite'll settle. The bite's <laughs> yeah, gonna settle. Yeah, they didn't sure put the well. elastics yeah, on. Yeah.
0: It's never an educational enjoying uh, enjoyment to talk about these cases. We just want to blame other people. So I know you already mentioned kind of don't blame yourself. But how do you encourage someone do that mental shift of switching from blaming this, blaming that, or trying to avoid the situation, and just really thinking why did this fail and why did this go wrong? Because I will say as a new practitioner, it's very difficult to just really blame yourself and figure out what went wrong because you're so desperate, as you said, in your early career to just gain reputation and maintain the ability to do these procedures and gain the trust of people to allow you these procedures.
2: Yeah, you know, it's an unfortunate consequence in the world of surgery where we have this idea of blame. And part of that is uh, an overaggrandizement of our own station in life so what we're saying really when you blame yourself for something is you're saying i'm omnipotent and i'm all-powerful and i control all of the elements well you don't you know you're just one feature in this patient's outcome so only when we see ourselves as you know having the god view and controlling everything only then do we have to actually accept all the blame you know you're just the conductor of the orchestra you're not playing every instrument So first of all, I encourage people just dispense with the word blame, because uh, there are way too many statistical and behavioral variables at play that lead to an outcome where cause and effect are very distant from each other, you know, very distant. So in education, I'm really interested in identifying know-how using computers, but we get into a lot of discussions about, you know, it's important to for people to you know do the surgery right and i want to see that somebody does a sagittal split correctly but you actually learn much more from making errors way more right so if you land a 747 three times really flawlessly i'm not getting on your plane until you've been in bad weather you've bounced on the tarmac a few times you know you've had a couple engines go out and the only way to have bad outcomes is to do a lot right or to be really you know you know really incompetent person but that's really un- that, that's really unlikely that's really unlikely right those those outliers are really unlikely where somebody's doing something a lot and they're doing it poorly and your benefit every mistake you make today benefits every subsequent patient that comes to you as long as you recognize your errors as errors and uh, you re- what you what you do then is you reformulate your internal model of the world. So again, surgeons are just predictors, and we run on an internal model of the world that's a consequence of our past experiences. So if your internal model is a bit faulty, like my internal model didn't consider this factor or that factor, then you, this is an opportunity to update your internal model, now your internal model is a better predictor of the future. And I also say to young folks that when you, are honest with your bad results, everybody will respect you. And if they don't respect you, then they are probably struggling a lot with their own identity. Every experienced surgeon and honest people realize that you can't possibly control all the variables. And by sharing your bad results with others, you are helping to minimize the probability that somebody has to actually physically make the same mistake as you in order to benefit from the knowledge coming from that mistake. Thank God we don't all have to make all the same errors. So it's, you're really doing somebody a favor by sharing your bad outcomes. It's a, it's a generous gift.
1: Honestly, I wish, if even this is again from another personal level, like your second answer away. I wish I had this conversation with you or I'd met you a year and a half ago when I started my career, like I'm not being a resident. Cause for Wendell, I think this is invaluable information. You're gonna go out there, you're gonna be a resident, you're, you're a chief resident, now you're a fellow, and then you feel like you know everything but then you become your lowest on the total plugin. You have to build your name. You're, right. you're scared to make mistakes because your referral may not refer back to you. You're worried that if you make a mistake, oh, like did the partners actually do this when they were younger? And it's true. Having the ability to understand that we all are going to make mistakes, as long as you learn from them, they are valuable lessons. Having people that you can share that you're like, oh, today today was a tough day. Today, that well, those weren't easy cases. Those beat me up a little bit. But knowing that you can share that with someone and being honest about it, is huge. And I wish I had this conversation a while ago because it would have made the first like three to four
2: months a lot easier. Yeah. I actually get excited about my errors now because it's like, especially if yeah. I have good photos, the I'm like, challenge. oh, well, not, not only is it a challenge to fix it, but it's like, wow, I've got images now and here's a beautiful representation of something I did wrong. See, I'm not there and, yet by yeah. any means. You know, <laughs> 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 yeah, I know. it
0: takes a while to get yeah. it. Oscar's going with that model of being competent to make all the errors Exactly. As fast Let's as just possible. do and everything
2: wrong. Get them out of the way. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that was key point number seven. Key, or Sorry, six. Key point number seven. This is probably the best one of them oh, all. I love this one. I know. I know. It's probably your favorite. And I'm sure it was Oscar's favorite too, I think. Key point number seven is, should I repair one condyle or both is the wrong question. It
2: is. It's the wrong question and it's a question that only makes sense if you see the if you see surgery as dangerous or more harmful than not having surgery you know we shouldn't why do we see condyles different than every other part of the mandible we recognize obviously that the size and shape of the condyle is optimal before it's injured the size and shape of the condyle i don't care what it looks like is not optimal after it's injured right so we want it to be sized and shaped like it was before the injury. The only thing messing all this up is that damn facial nerve, right? <laughs> I mean, if it wasn't for that facial nerve, Fixed we'd every be kind. in there with our technology and we'd be fixing that thing. When we refrain from repairing condyles, it is not a comment on whether or not the condyle needs to be repaired or ought to be repaired. It's a comment on the state of our existing technology. Right. There's a time and place where we wouldn't open bodies and we wouldn't open angles because they all got pussed out and everything had to be treated closed because, you know, and then we overcame that with technology of internal fixation, a little bumpy at first. And now we can do it routinely. None of us would seriously sit here and argue like if you had a bilateral man uh, angle fracture, you wouldn't sit here and ask, which one should I fix? Right. <laughs> And if somebody came in, you know, in the talk, I showed two femur fractures. That's that the best orthopedic one. Surgeon. Yeah, an orthopedic <laughs> surgeon wouldn't ask you, you know, which leg you want fixed. Cause the other one yeah. I'm going to leave short and then force you to walk around hobble for the rest. Just of walk it off. But don't worry, cause most people, yeah, most people can adapt to a shorter leg. Yeah. So it's all going to yeah. be fine. Right. And that's okay. <laughs> if this is the state of our technology now, it's the state of our technology. I'm just saying that none of us should celebrate or feel comfortable with the current state of technology the way it is. And we should be striving towards total restoration of the size and shape and function of the condyles because body parts always work the best when they're shaped the most optimally. The reluctance to repair a condyle is the left broken condyle gets little solace or comfort out of the fact that the right one got fixed, right? (laughs) It just doesn't. So if you got the skill and technology to fix the left one, then why are you holding off on the right side? Do it. Do them both if they both need to be repaired. You know, there's this uh Zied and Kent article, which from 1983, and I always call this like the a, a zombie article, because no matter how many times you try to kill it, it just keeps coming <laughs> back to life.
0: That um, was the first article we reviewed yeah. on the first episode of the podcast. Yeah, I know.
2: I know. Exactly. <laughs> Again, so ask yourself would you have a long and exhaustive list of should and shouldn't repair for the angle, right? No, No. no. or the body or the symphysis. No, no. You, you repair them all. Yeah. You figure out yeah, how yeah. it's broken and you apply your technology to repair them. You don't hem and ha about which ones should or shouldn't be repaired. If you have the technology, you do it. And if you shouldn't, you don't. And it shouldn't matter where or how it's fractured. That's you a know. great point. That uh, only makes sense if you don't want to rip, re- if you don't want to do it, you don't have the technology or the technology is more harmful than it is helpful.
1: No, that's a great point. That gets us to another, another point, key point number eight, where it says minimize the total number of implants, which stands for plates or screws for a fracture.
0: Mark, any reason you don't use the term hardware instead of implants? Implants is just
2: ontologically a little bit more correct. Uh, hardware is also good, but total number of har- implants is more implies like discrete pieces, so each screw and plate is an implant. Yep. Whereas hardware is more of a everything, the whole uh, thing. Hardware is more of a yeah, it's more collective uh, of all of the implants. We, um, we like
0: to nitpick uh, semantics. On I love podcast, semantics. I will do I will <laughs>
2: yeah. I will do semantics all day long. Believe me, everything is with uh, with purpose. Um, we thought we were going to get yeah, you on that, did. One, but you no, successfully. We defended even no, it. talked about it no. before.
1: We're like, "Why does he use implants?" <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah, I know, I know, because we're all used to thinking dental yeah. implants, but yeah. really, yeah, implants are anything that you insert. How insert.
0: many implants did you place during residency? Oh, I placed tons. Exactly. Tons. <laughs> yeah. oh, when, yeah. That's what tons. I should I did an angle the other that's day. That's what I should do when one I one plate p- four screws of five <laughs> implants. Exactly. How I'm well, many eat-
2: you know we we think about all these things differently, like dental implants and the implants we put in for fractures, but. On the level of inflammation and physiology and bone healing, the body doesn't see these, these things as different. So it makes sense to collectively call them implants because the ways they fail are the same everywhere, right? They are non-vascularized, you know, human-made items that are inserted into the body, you know, as opposed to a prosthesis, which is uh, non-made, which is a human-made thing, but that's not inserted into the body. Every implant that we have can mechanically fail. Or it can become inflamed, you know. And really, infection is just a a kind of inflammation that's caused by bacteria or viruses or microorganisms. So all infection is inflammation. So I'm just going to use the word inflammation because you know dead people don't get infections. So any implant can become inflamed, and so the more and fail, and so the more implants you. So if you can achieve the the restoration of form, which we said we wanted to do. And if you can achieve the stability of your segments across the fracture, which is the second thing we want to do, and you can do that with fewer plates and screws, especially you have a lower probability, you have fewer degrees of freedom and fewer possible places in which your mechanism can fail later on. Every screw... Even if your fracture heals, every screw is a potential loose foreign body that forces that patient to have pain, take pain medicine, go see a doctor, leave work, find child care for their kids, have to go back you know, for an operation, undergo the risks of anesthesia. Everything should be seen like that, kind of like uh, an actuary would look at long-term possibilities of remote events. So, you know, if you're looking, if you're doing a jaw surgery and you're looking at, God, do I put that fourth screw in that empty hole? You know, it looks kind of lonely there. Yeah, I better fill it. Well, you just, you know, unless you're adding to the stability of the fracture, all you're doing with that is increasing the probability that that patient's going to have to suffer later in life and have another operation. So if you can achieve the same form with fewer implants, then, you know, actuarially, you should be better off.
0: On a side note, from a Canadian point of view, obviously you're in the States, but from a Canadian point of view for Oscar and I also, you know, public healthcare system, tax money pays for everything in the hospital, trauma, OR time, and hardware. So if you're using half the number of implants, plates, and screws, you're also saving a ton of money, especially if they weren't necessary to begin with. Right.
2: And if they are necessary, then man, they definitely save money. Internal fixation is definitely a money saver because, You know, even though it costs more upfront, you're saving, you know, their jaws aren't wired shut. They can go back to work earlier. They're a much more functional member of society. They don't have to take time off work. They don't have to come back for multiple appointments. They don't have to have anesthesia a second time to get their arch bars off, everything. Use everything you need, but don't use any more. You know, it's this Occam's razor, you know? I'm not sure if that was the right Occam's razor.
0: So key point number nine, avoid placing implants Under incisions. And I will say, from a personal point of view, I'm not sure about you, Oscar, but I'm probably guilty of this because, as you said, surgery is easy when you can see what you're doing. And it's easiest to see what you're doing if your incision is where you need to operate. So I'm probably guilty, especially when it comes to trauma, of making my incisions over the areas that will eventually be plated. So Mark, can you elaborate on this? And how do we avoid doing this?
2: Right. So the most common instance of this where I see it crop up the most is the following scenario. So there's a, some kind of symphysis, parasymphysis fracture, that's been repaired with a two-plate technique with one plate at the inferior border and one plate higher up. And a standard vestibular incision was used. That second superior plate that's closer to the alveolar border will generally fall underneath a few millimeters of mucosa. And what happens then is I think too often the patient will come back, there'll be a dehiscence there and we'll say, oh gosh, what did you do? I ate a cheese sandwich. Well, I'm looking at that.
0: Wait, Mark, is this, is this a generic, (laughs) is this a generic example or are you reading my (laughs) OR dictation from last week? Yeah, it's
2: a, it's a, it's a, it's a known phenomenon, believe me. You know, you find all the reasons why it's there and, you know, you think, oh, what should I do about it? And I'm going to give them rinses and whatnot. But the body is really just doing exactly what it, it's opt- it should do. It's finding a source of chronic inflammation and it's trying to to create a dehiscence through which it can exfoliate the problem. So it's not a bug. It's a feature as far as the, the mandible is concerned. It's a little bit harder to avoid when you're making incisions back on the angle and you have like a mini po- plate on the superior border. But that doesn't seem to be as problematic and doesn't seem to lead to like non-unions. You know, you're back at the synthesis. It's, a, it's two weeks later. You're looking at this gaping open thing with some pus in it. And now the fracture is failing. And now you got to you know possibly go back to the OR. And, and you got to help the patient through all this stuff. And so what I'll do, and this is a bit of a hobby horse in mind. My residents are sick of hearing me talk about it. But I would prefer to achieve my stability my form and my stability with a single implant that's down at the inferior border, a single plate that's sufficiently stable that makes a second plate that is closer to the alveolar margin irrelevant as far as the stability goes. In my experience, that has really kind of just evaporated this sort of post-op complication of because that that dehiscence isn't happening because of your closure. It's happening because you've got got an implant. Right underneath your incision, I like to put a, a stronger plate at the inferior border, and uh, avoid placing a plate at the superior border.
1: No, that, that's great, and that kind of leads us to the next key point, which I thought was really interesting too: is infected fractures are caused by instability and necrosis, not contamination.
2: That's right. We we all work in a privileged area, and I love to every time I'm talking to patients, uh, I'm always explaining to them, you know, because they're worried about wound care and this and that. and I try to calm their nerves a little bit by saying, oh look, it's a privileged area and it's all going to be okay I said and I'll, and I'll bring up I said just imagine an orthopedic surgeon who just you know replaced your your hip and you know and then that night you took dinner your dinner and just ground it into the hip wound as much as you could right well that's what we get away with in the mouth all the time and everything ends up doing just fine right so the rules don't yeah. apply right and everybody loves that because it makes them laugh and it really does draw a strong uh it's a good visual between the two it's a great visual yeah. i love i love saying that because it, it it makes people understand truly how crazy it is that But yeah, so the mouth is used to being fully contaminated, uh, with food because, you know, the organism has to consume calories and yet the body part still has to heal. So we have lots of blood flow making up for, for this, but when you see a failing fracture, it's unlikely that it's, I mean, it's not impossible, but it's unlikely because it's, you know, from some nefarious bacteria, it's much more probable that you had some dead bone in there. That maybe you should have debrided, that is still in there. And, you know, things that don't have a blood supply don't do well after surgery, or that your segments are instable. They're moving, they're unstable, they're moving relative to each other. So every time you swallow your secretions, maybe those segments are moving a little bit. And that's preventing proper callus formation and proper healing across a fracture. So the corollary of this key point is that infected fractures are caused by instability and necrosis, not contamination, is that you can feel very confident in going back into an infected fracture site. And if you're able to stabilize it, then you can do so right away. You don't have to worry about freeing the area of quote-unquote infection. Your infection is from that dead tooth or that big piece of dead bone or the instability that you have, if you can remove the dead tooth, you can remove the dead piece of bone, and you can create good stability, then the presence of pus shouldn't prevent you from placing another plate and stabilizing the fracture. Because the the contamination, aka the abscess, is really from, like I said, it's from instability or the dead tooth or the dead bone. So fix those things, and then you can confidently go forward with fixing the fracture.
0: Perfect. So our last key point, we've already discussed a little bit, and it's kind of nice because it ties in multiple other ones. And it's like other parts of the mandible, the condylar process benefits from repair. There's a difference between closed reduction and closed treatment. And specifically in the theme of reducing the total number of implants, you, know, you have a, a different approach to the number of plates needed for open reduction internal fixation of a subcondylar fracture. So I think we've already discussed kind of the fact that, you know, condylar fracture should be repaired just like the rest of the mandible. And if there wasn't the facial nerve, all of us would do it all the time. And I think we've kind of agreed that repairing these fractures have a large benefit. Now, one of the things that's traditionally taught is you should have two plates on a subcondylar fracture, one at the posterior border, one kind of angled more interior, your alternative is sometimes to use these rhomboid plates, these lambda plates, these K plates that are three-dimensional plates. And the idea is that the posterior border, if you only have one plate there, you know, the condyle still has all these muscles attached and it can rotate and it can fail and you'll get a non-union or malunion or something going on. I know that you and your lecture spoke about you routinely only place one plate for these fractures. So can you kind of explain that rationale in, in your approach to fixation of these subcondylar fractures
2: i don't what i encourage is don't think about number of, of plates so much as the quality of stabilization so i it's true that i do use a single plate and that is chiefly because in condyle fractures i'm not just treating the ones that are really low kind of where the fracture goes you know very politely sort of right through the middle of the sigmoid notch and trends downward. And it's, you know, you want to also do the ones up in the neck and there's not much real estate up there. Right. Yeah. You got a couple holes to drill. If you don't get those babies right, then you don't have anything yeah. left. <laughs> We're right? done here. Yeah. <laughs> so I'd like, as like, there's no room to put a second yeah. plate here. You yeah. know, yeah. it's just not possible. That's one of
0: those, oh, well, we, at least we reduced it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And now it. we can wire them yeah, shut. It, yeah. It's in the best spot it can be in. Yeah. It was That's worth right. it. Yeah. It was worth it.
2: Yeah. There's it a cognitive dissonance at work. <laughs> <laughs> so I just find that there's not enough real estate to put two implants, but there's always a nice lateral buttress, you know, I'm frequently putting that, 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 that upper screw is almost, sometimes it's almost in the condylar pole. Now the single plate that I use is one that's, you know, the, it's hard to characterize plates with names. So instead I I like to use their properties. It's stiff enough that I cannot bend it with my fingers. Okay. So it's not a mini plate. Yeah. Not a huge reconstruction plate, but it's one of those plates that's stiff enough that I can't. If I put it in my left and right hands, I cannot bend that thing without a
0: plate. Usually, like a, 1-5 a yeah, like, like a five or a 2.0, like a recon plate yep, kind of yeah. thing. Lower
2: profile, 2.0, yeah. four or five holes, depending on the fracture configuration. And I, I don't, I've been doing that for 15 years. It's always worked for me. I would have no problem with those other strategies, except for the fact there's just not enough real estate up there for two plates a lot of times
1: yeah and that, and that's Perfect. true because exactly like the easy ones that are right through the sigmoid notch where you have tons of real estate sure you could put but if you're going after everything yeah. and like we talked about trying to restore as much as possible you're just not going to have room
2: that's right yeah the higher it goes the harder it is the higher the fracture is the harder it is and um yeah, you're not going to have many chances and uh you know I, I try to make my screws as long as possible so that they're going as bicortical if possible and, but if you have a nice stiff plate by four bicortical screws, screws, I don't know, I've, I don't have data in front of me, but that's that always seems to be reliable. Yeah, I think
1: those were the eleven key points that we were trying to get through, and that was really, really engaging and good for for all the listeners. I think, I think some follow up questions that we had are just a couple other ones. The first one is: Do teeth in the line of fracture need to be removed? And I know this question comes up a lot.
2: Yes, very commonly. Um, I have a, a good a pat, good pad answer for that one. They need to be, I remove teeth in the line of fracture if they're diseased enough to be removed, if they weren't in the fracture. So a lot of caries, periodontal disease, they're mobile, I remove them. I remove impacted teeth routinely that are in the fracture. And my one of my rules of thumb is this, if I don't have to, so let's say it's an impacted tooth. It's not a useful tooth, patient wasn't chewing with it, but it's impacted third molar. I'm right there. So here's my rule of thumb: If I have to pick up a handpiece and remove bone, I'm not taking it out, because bone is my precious substance. I want bone to heal to bone. I don't want to be removing it. Right? If I can flip that tooth out of there without removing bone, great. I've just probably minimized one additional small but significant possible source of you know inflammation or a problem with that tooth. And I'm going to flip it out of there. I have not found that doing that makes it hard to reduce the fracture. I can't imagine why it would. I mean, everything else can still come together just fine without that tooth in there. So if you have to pick up a handpiece, I'm not taking it out. I would remove any tooth that is diseased enough to be removed if it wasn't in the fracture.
1: That's a nice, straightforward way of thinking it. Yep. Yep.
2: yep. But teeth are expensive. And I don't take them out willy-nilly. You know, replacing that thing, think of how much that costs, Right think of how much it costs the patient later to replace that tooth it's not trivial and the older i get the more i take pride in like doing every you know doing things through the mouth like i'm an oral surgeon i love you know residents want to sometimes you know make extra oral incisions oh yeah do do what they perceive as bigger surgery i love the fact that i can do it with less surgery and i love preserving the teeth you know and maybe even going to lengths because you know you think about how expensive. Think of how you know highly specialized a tooth is as a structure and how difficult it is to replace it, and especially in the trauma setting when the bone is you know maybe don't have great bone afterwards and God, that patient's looking at bone grafts and all kinds of nonsense that they'll probably never be able to afford. and so anyway, teeth are teeth are valuable. But the other
1: point you made there, yeah, as a resident, you think extra oral big incisions, more skill, cooler when you're training as a resident. But the, the more you realize, if you can do something in early, that takes a lot more skill. And that is actually a cool research if you're able to get the same result yeah. from a tiny little incision without
2: leaving a scar. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 That's, that's really what brings you value. And uh, there's no shame with doing things through the mouth. I mean, who wouldn't want, there's no scar like
0: no scar. Yeah. Oscar, I think you have the next question about, you know, on-call and, surgeons. And I,
1: so again, I keep going back to your lecture. I found it very informative and very enjoyable, but this is one of the things that I guess I never thought of before I heard your lecture. The other things were we're talking about trauma, but this I never thought of before, and I think it's a great point. And the things that trauma cases are assigned to the surgeon on call at the time. But you pointed out that we would never assign cancer cases this way, so why do we do this for trauma? So how can we fix this?
2: It's another hobby horse of mine to ride in that I frequently see people whose lives have taken a very nasty turn, not because of their injury, but because of the treatment that they got while the expertise that could have avoided that bad outcome existed at that institution. So the institution had people who knew how to treat this real tricky mandible fracture, yet the patient wasn't given the opportunity to see them. There's a few causes for this. One is this agency cause where I think, again, we perceive patients who have been injured as somehow more blameworthy, and we, you know, perceive... Patients who have cancer is maybe a little bit different. Is gosh, they're just unlucky, right? So there's this idea that you know, you know, trauma patients had it coming, so they should be happy getting what we give them, and that's overstating it. I don't think people really think that. I'm just there's that underlying kind of uh, of uh, tendency there. But even if you know you were treating you know the the, the world's most malevolent human being that ever lived you would only have an interest in getting the best possible outcome because you don't want to see that person more than you need to right your your reputation is never enhanced by getting a bad outcome the, because the patient is an asshole right you're always wanting to get the best outcome no matter what the behavioral characteristics of the patient yeah we have this this weird thing part of it is i guess timing you know where we think well gosh you know it's you know trauma has to be treated immediately but w- if we dispense with this idea there are some facial injuries that do need immediate treatment. You know, you got your entrapped inferior rectus muscle or your retrobulbar hematoma. Hematoma, but those are notable by how exceptional they are. You know, definitely when I trained, there was much more urgency to getting mandible fractures treated within a day or two. And we found in the last twenty years that's really not necessary. That's really doesn't matter. If you had two options, one between treating the patient immediately with a maybe not very stable surgery, or two, treating them two weeks later, but just nailing the stability, like great compression, perfect alignment. The patient who got treated two weeks later is going to be better off than the patient who got immediate treatment that wasn't really, really optimal. So I think we can, if we, if we allow ourselves to embrace the idea, like just like cancer patients don't need immediate treatment, I don't think trauma patients really need immediate treatment either. There needs to be some responsible person available for emergencies. But part of the problem is that we perceive that it has to be done immediately and, and it doesn't. Another reason this exists is, is the lack of fellowships in maxillofacial trauma. So we have this, I know in the United States, we have this phrase that bothers me a little bit where we say that. Well, facial trauma is core OMS, right? What that is meant to mean is that every single person who graduates from a residency should know enough that subsequent education and training would be pointless. But from what I understand of my evolution of expertise in facial trauma is that that can't possibly be the case if I compare myself to what I knew at the time. I mean, Wendell, you're doing, uh, you know, a fellowship in something that is "quote unquote" core OMS, you know, and it's uh, orthognathic surgery. And do you think you've learned anything from sitting at the feet of a master and watching and learning from them? Do you think that's valuable, even though orthognathic surgery is "quote unquote" core OMS? And in Canada, you guys get great training. Do you, have, exactly. Have you Have and you I, learned I, anything? <laughs>
0: And I know, I know we brought this up on another episode because people in Canada, you know, they kind of judge you. They say, why are you going to do a fellowship in orthognathic? You come from a Canadian program. Did you not do enough of this? Or are you guys not good at this? Or what's going on here? And as you said, you come here and you learn, you learn from experts and it's night and day. The way I do orthopaedic surgery, I wouldn't even recognize myself from residency, the, the flow, the efficiency, yeah. uh, the com- uh, comfortableness. And, you know, here we staff all the trauma cases So I would say I've learned just as much from having to independently run trauma for the first time as I have from doing orthognathic under more experienced, you know, legends of orthognathic surgery in the States. So I completely agree. It's something that you can always, you can always get better. And the second thing is volume. So if you graduate and you go into private practice and you take trauma call, even if you graduated doing tons of trauma, and then it's six months before you see your next case, exactly, you know ZMC exactly. that needs to go to the hospital or orbit, or you're going to end up referring them, or you're going to end up wiring them shut, or you're not going to end up doing that. That's right. You know transparotted because when was the last time you saw a facial and, nerve? Yeah. Until you know? so that point, I completely that agree. point. When
1: do I agree with you? It's different if Mark takes six months off than if you or me take six months off, right? Like if we take six months off at the beginning right. of our career, you're not going to want to get back on that bike that quickly. If Mark takes yeah, out six scary. months, yeah. he's like, okay, nothing has changed. I've been doing this for twenty years.
2: Yeah, yeah, he's got the muscle yeah, memory. Exactly. Yeah, it doesn't change too much. I knew a guy who left trauma surgery for ten years because he got sick, and he came back. He was an expert, an absolute <laughs> expert. And I said, I "said Bob, did anything change?" He's like, "Nah, it's just like nothing. <laughs> everything's the same as it was when I left ten years ago." He he, he was like
0: he, he was probably like, the only thing that changed is the plates are green now instead of yellow.
2: Exactly, but. uh You know, so I'm a huge fan of a fellowship is not a sign of insignificant training any more than going to college is a sign that you didn't learn enough in high school. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. And we heard the same thing from people in dental school. Why are you doing oral surgery? Didn't you learn enough? My dad does all his oral surgery. Why are you doing this? And this is just the same phenomenon. Why are you doing a fellowship? Didn't you learn enough in high school? You know, it's just it's exactly the same mantra. And it comes. you do a fellowship not because you're deficient in something, but because you love something. And because yep. you love it, you want to master it, right? We have to stop seeing fellowships as a sign of weakness because they're not. And honestly, no other specialty see it that way. That is really a dental and oral surgery thing where we say, you know, well, who do you think you are going off and, and getting this extra, you know, credential and I'm just as good as you. And it's, of course you are. It's not a personal judgment. But in otolaryngology, like in orthopedics and neurosurgery, 80%, 90% of the residents do a fellowship. The specialty isn't wringing their hands about what it means. And if some otolaryngologist is going to come to their community with a credential that they don't have. And, you know, at the core, a lot of our specialty is based on small business. And, you know, we kind of see the world through a small business lens. And But being, you know, fellowships are the place where new knowledge and new techniques are created, right? So we we talked about the inability to, you know, to treat condylar fractures. And that's a testament to the lack of technology. And technology comes from focus. And people need to focus on a problem. And when they focus on a problem, they develop new strategies, new insights, and new techniques. Fellowships are the way, are the place that new knowledge grows and where it grows. I mean, oral and maxillofacial surgery was once just probably a fellowship, right? It was just a tiny outpouching of surgery in general. And then, you know, knowledge out pouches further. And then those pouches create out pouches. And every, you know, fellowship is just a new budding area of knowledge and expertise. And we should be nurturing these things, not crushing them. And if you tell me that, oh, I got 30 months of oral surgery training and I just, boy, my brain's all full of trauma knowledge and there's no room for any more. I would say that that's probably not the case, right? Oral surgery residencies are relatively abbreviated. I mean, they're in, at least in the U.S. They're in between 30 and usually sometimes up to 36 months of OMS experience long, maybe a couple months longer. But like an otolaryngologist gets 58 months minimum of of otolaryngology, not general surgery. Otolaryngology. A neurosurgeon, 60 months of neurosurgery, not general surgery. Neurosurgery. We're at 30 months of OMS, and you're supposed to learn dental alveolar surgery you know, master anesthesia and implants and orthognathic, I mean, there's a lot to learn there. So fellowships are key because if we had fellowships in facial trauma, to get back to our question about taking call, we had fellowships uh, in facial trauma, then just like there's fellowships in cancer. So it makes sense to say, ah, here's the set of humans with special knowledge and know-how in this domain. And it makes sense for the patient with a problem of cancer to go to see these particular people in this, you know, who have this special training. As long as that doesn't exist in facial trauma, then we're probably just going to think, well, we, you know, we all have the same credentials and patients just fine in any set of hands. And another roadblock to it is accreditation standards that say that if my resident goes to the operating room with a plastic surgeon, then there's nothing of value to learn there. Right. So residencies are all forced to do a certain amount of trauma with their own faculty. As if the learner cares what you know guild that the attending is paying dues to, or you know, what organization certified them 17 years ago. What matters is that you're a student and you're working with a master and they're showing you how the world works so you can modify your internal model and make better predictions in the future. It doesn't matter what guild that person belongs to. But in our accreditation standards, we say, well, you know, you can't go do trauma. So I would love to, you know, just set me up with trauma. Let the otolaryngologist come and train with me. I'd love to show them. Let the plastic surgeon come and hang out with me. I would treat them like anybody else. But we still have to divide things up because of the standards. And that stands in the way of us putting the patient first. Instead, we put the department first or the specialty first And we allocate the patients between us, like their resources, instead of having a patient-centric process where we say, where do the best resources exist at the institution for solving this problem? That's patient-centric.
0: Perfect. This kind of actually segues really nicely into our last kind of follow-up question for you, which is, you know, we have a lawyer listenership. They, you know, tune in each week and they kind of follow the progress of what we're talking about and how things are developing and on our last episode, we reviewed an article in Jameis about the outpatient treatment of mandibular fractures. And they discussed a the paradigm shift between something Oscar and I have experienced in our own residency, where when we started out, someone came to the ER with a fracture, they were admitted, they replaced NPO, and there's a cycle of NPO, are we going to surgery, we're not going to surgery, we got bumped by this category one case or this emergency case, and then the cycle repeats, cycle repeats. And then the kind of treatment modality shifted to, okay, we have your scan, we have your name, we have your phone number, go home. We'll call you, we'll tell you when we're thinking, we'll tell you when to be NPO. And then when you're ready, maybe we have elective time, maybe we're just doing it whenever. You come, you have the surgery, you go home. It's a day surgery outpatient procedure. And we're just talking about, you know, usually isolated mandible fractures here. Now, I want to break up this question into two parts So we can go briefly through both parts. The first part is, what are your thoughts on this paradigm shift? Because the one reason we're really excited to ask you in particular this question is you're a program director, you're in academics, you have residents, you take call, you understand how residency works, how a hospital works, how logistics work. So the first question of a two-part question is, do you agree with this paradigm shift between Fracture in the ER, admit NPO, IV fluids, we'll see when we can do in the next few days, to, okay, here's what we need to do, get all the paperwork done, go home, and we'll schedule this as an outpatient procedure.
2: I uh, fully endorse the paradigm shift. I see hospitals as really dangerous places to be if you don't need to be. You shouldn't be in a hospital unless you need to. Right. So what other building exists in the world where you're like semi-conscious and somebody put an IV in your arm and there are strangers running around with medicines that they can (laughs) inject in it? (laughs) I mean, it sounds like a horror show and there's like no, there's all kinds of like drug resistant bacteria everywhere and the food sucks and you can't get any sleep. So some poor intern is having to get up at 4 a.m. to pre 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 round before his book, you know, malevolent chief resident. I mean, it's a it's an awful place to exist. Right. Nobody wants to be in the, you shouldn't be in the hospital. Hospitals are actually unhealthy places unless you've got some major physiological failing or you need an operation. Yeah. Or you're having an operation. I mean, I don't see hospitals as safe places to house people. I think this issue is there's no question that, you know, obviously doing a surgery earlier is better. You know, if if the world was a perfect place and we could just operate on everything immediately, that'd be great. But I would rather that the patient went home and had the comfort of their own bed. In their own sleep and the love of their own family and the lack of stress, and they just came back in a couple of days and had their surgery. Then, I mean, that's how I've done it for a long time. And whether or not you stay overnight in the hospital isn't a function of your fracture, it's a function of how long you were asleep, you know, the effects of anesthesia, how many narcotics you got, and what does the clock say when you finish? You know, if it says 9 p.m., well, you're probably staying overnight, but. The same surgery done, you know, as the first start, you're going home. You know, I think that with that paper, it's kind of a non-issue. I mean, it doesn't matter if the mandible fracture can be treated as outpatient. What the paper should said, should have said, is people who have three and a half hours of anesthesia uh, that completes at 4:30 a.m. and got 200 milligrams of fentanyl can they go home after surgery? <laughs> you know, because those are those yeah. are the actual variables that matter. Yeah. You know, the, yeah. the osteocytes don't know, you know, what building they're in. You know. <laughs> after surgery and there's nothing, there's nothing protective about a hospital. However, I'll say this, workflows are difficult to change. Also, ideas are difficult to change. So if you, you know, some people, if they've always done it this way and they they're successful, and they attribute their success to the, to their workflow and they're very you know reluctant to change it it'll be hard but, to convince yeah, them I, I wouldn't hesitate you know, you know i knew i do know there's still programs where people will do stuff like wire people's teeth together like at night and stuff like that and to me that's like um, i don't know we've ne- I've never never seen that before i've never done i've never even considered such a thing so, you got a symphysis fracture, you know, go home. It's not a life threatening injury. Nothing bad's going to happen. You know, even a symphysis in a body, you know, just it's okay. Nothing bad's going to happen. It's going to be all right.
0: We kind of knew that you would agree with the paradigm shift. Oscar and I both agreed with the paradigm shift. I think any reasonable human being, <laughs> yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. really should start realizing that you'd rather be home than sitting in the Way hospital Way to throw doing the nothing, other side under NPO the PO bus. <laughs> no, I'm going to throw them under the bus. You know. There are certain there are certain strong opinions we're allowed to have, and this is definitely well, one of a, them. A, there's a um, there's a
2: paternalism to healthcare that says, well, this patient's bad. They're unreliable. Yeah. They're a road warrior. Yeah. They don't obey my commands, and I need to keep them semi-incarcerated in this place, yep. or they, you know, I don't have control over them, so they don't come back. So what? Yeah. They'll come back. That's don't even worry. better. I was oh, going to yeah. say. And that was like, their choice. Okay. They go home and they don't come back. <laughs> it's like they're, oh, they're gonna. I just yeah. I just freed up my afternoon. (laughs) It's all right. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, you don't like, you're not personally responsible for. They're an adult. It's their choice. The patient has agency. That's right. They have agency and they can go out. Like no one's going to drag you out of bed in the middle of the night, you know,
0: to, you know, to punish you. Well, this is it. You said, you said it dragging out of bed in the middle (laughs) of the night, because this is the second part to the question Yeah, and something we debated last time. And we said, it'd be interesting to get an academic point of view. And we're getting the real bonus here because not only academics, you're a program director. Yeah. So you're in this charge means of resident a lot. education. Yes. So here we go. Now that we've both all agreed that these, you know, isolated mandible fractures, for the most part, can be treated as an outpatient surgery and be totally fine and better for the patient, better for the resident, better for the staff. Why do we continue to force interns and junior residents to go see these patients in the ER at night, in the middle of the night, when the reality is if, you know, the senior resident looked at the scan with them and they saw an isolated body angle, whatever fracture, you name it, they can just see them in clinic the next day or in a couple days and book the OR. Why are we constantly sending residents in the middle of the night compromising sleep, compromising performance to make it so difficult on them? Why can't we just have these people come as outpatients so what is your answer to that can we just stop sending the interns to the er in the middle of the night
2: yeah so the scenario would be you know a patient that the er doctor is not concerned about you know they the er is like yeah fine he's got a you know body and an angle fracture and you know, uh, so they're not worried and don't need you to come there because they have concern about you know a loose tooth that can be swallowed or something like that. But you know, it like in a private practice, that sort of thing. The ER would say to the private practitioner, "Hey, you know, we'll you we'll would just call you in the morning, or you know, or you know, we'll we'll let you see the patient tomorrow." There is a phenomenon in our field that comes from the fact that we were born as outsiders. You know, we're we're dentists and we're we're from the profession of dentistry, and my friend and program director at the loyola calls this phenomenon outdoctoring the doctors where we i mean i think you guys have heard many many times people talk about the pride they take in providing superb service to the er and most oms residents like if you go interviewed a program they'll always brag about we go first we go hardest you know we always see the patient before anybody else." And part of that is born uh, like the otolaryngologist isn't like running around like explaining to people the scope of otolaryngology and you know they're just they're they're delighted to have the patient come back the next day right but we at some level feel like we're outsiders we still do even though we have degrees like hanging from the wall and you don't have enough room for all of our degrees and i think it's okay for us to do this cuz other other fields are are doing it in the setting of education it can be a little bit trickier because that person has not yet been exposed to enough experiences where they have the judgment and insight now in your scenario the chief also weighed in and that was you know so you did have somebody with more experience weighing in but you know just giving the intern a pass a hard pass all the time there would be some nuance there that was missed there would be maybe some features that the er doctor didn't pick up it's I think it's clearly possible. And the model works much, much better, the more experienced the doctor is, and it works less better, the less experienced a doctor is. That's all I'll say. But I'm a huge fan of, you know, I, you know, the, like I said, the pre 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 rounding, I try to, you know, discourage that kind of thing. You know, let's all meet as a team. Let's teach each other. Let's work. During times when the human brain is actually cognitively capable of work, you know, let's, you know, respect the sleep cycle. Let's respect the fact.
0: God God forbid you need to eat. Yeah. You know, it's like, can we go grab lunch? What do you mean grab lunch? Are you weak? Are you weak? It's like, do you go home and eat dinner at the end of the day? Yeah. You're eating lunch
1: and doing a fellowship? What's wrong with you?
0: (laughs) Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well, we, again, we, we mistake the way we were trained for the way that it's that it's necessary to train so you know many teachers will say well this is what i had to do therefore it's necessary to do this to become a surgeon i think that's probably not right i mean i wouldn't argue that they did it i would just argue with the piece that says that that was a their quality as a surgeon is a consequence of sort of outdoctoring the doctors at every at every level so there definitely are some efficiencies there that we should take advantage of that we haven't yet.
0: So o- OHSU interns are still going to the ER. Sorry, I tried. <laughs> uh, I tried.
2: Yeah. yeah, yeah, but they don't have to take home call, or they don't have to take
0: uh, in-house call.
2: So nice small victories in life. Except they're when they're at Legacy, but because they're 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 on the airway and everything. So anyway, they're always they're always going in in the middle of the night, all the time. They seem to like it. I don't know why.
0: <laughs> no complaints. So just to finish out then, I think, Oscar, you would agree this has been a great interview. It's kind of everything we hoped it would be. We always like to give our guests a chance to give, you know, any shout outs. I mean, you've already mentioned some throughout the interview. Uh, Oscar and I give shout outs to people all the time, but now we like to give you a chance. So is there anyone you would like to give a shout out to on the podcast?
2: Like I said, my professors of surgery, Brian Alpert, A-L-P-E-R-T and George Kushner, K-U-S-H-N-E-R, George's chair at the University of Louisville and Brian's the past chair and both of these human beings taught me wonderful lessons about how to treat patients but mostly I remember Brian Brian saying all the time to me and he was right that you know being a program director is the best job in academic healthcare and he was right and it's a, a privilege and they also taught me that you do not have to treat your future colleagues, as anything other than future colleagues, in order to get the best possible performance and most respect out of them, the strict hierarchies and the uh, humiliation that can be part of surgical training is sort of like a an unnecessary you know holdover that actually doesn't improve the quality of education. I'm not saying experiencing stress isn't valuable and or that it should or could be avoided. But humiliation usually doesn't have a place. And I think there still is a f- some fair amount of humiliation out there. And anyway, they taught me that, in Brian's words, uh, residency doesn't have to be a Greek tragedy. And they were right. And as a corollary to that, uh, I want to thank my learners. I always call them learners. Uh, they're residents, of course. But I still see myself as a learner, uh, right? I'm always modifying my internal model. And I want to say thank you to my To my residents because you know it's such a privilege to work with them and to to be relied upon by them which is a privilege and they do so much and work so incredibly hard to make it easy to do my job they're great and i'm extremely grateful for them and want to give them a shout out residents past and present
0: awesome Well, uh, on behalf of Teeth and Titanium, we would like to thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to talk with us and impart your wisdom. I think this was a topic that all of our listeners can relate to. And I think we've taken a lot of salient points from this conversation. And as I mentioned before, I have actually taken, you know, some of these methodologies and as you would word it modified my internal model, that's literally affecting my practice on a day-to-day basis right now as a fellow in the way I treat patients. So, I think it's great to learn from people with experience, and it means we don't have to undergo all the trials and tribulations that others had to. So we wanna thank you so much for coming on the podcast, and we appreciate you taking the time.
2: Let me let me ask you, uh, Wendell, how is that working for you? The single plate at the condyle and the, the plates at the inferior, board. Is, it, no is it okay? So no.
0: far, so good. So far, so good. Okay, uh, no great. hardware failure, no non-unions, and I think the facial nerve and mental nerve are just overrated nerves. <laughs> I was, yeah, that
2: mental nerve, that one was really inconvenient. (laughs) Just just think how easy (laughs) mandibular surgery would be if that darn nerve wasn't.
0: Oh, definitely. Yeah, no, so, so far so good. And uh, it's been going well. I will say the hardware reps don't like me as much now.
2: Yes yes yeah just start using lag screws and then they'll really hate you
0: <laughs> then then they're gonna stop coming <laughs> oh you know what it yeah well now that, now that you now that you mentioned it you want to know the, you know what want to know what the best thing i did that yeah. really made everyone angry yeah. embrace your wire mmf oh yes yes
2: my favorite i love that can
0: you imagine transitioning from hybrid arch bars to yeah. to 26 gauge you're on wires? their hit Miss wendell it worked, and it worked, didn't it? It worked good. It worked well. I mean, listen, know. it was a guy with great teeth. Yeah, an angle fracture just needed a little superior border plate. Super, super easy routine surgery. Did the embrasure MMF. I will say, you know, as you said, we're constantly learning. Worked beautifully, but I did know, I did realize that I didn't tighten them enough. Oh, so you yeah. think you've, you think you've cinched them into occlusion, and then you start moving the dude around and get this plate in, and you realize, oh, it was it was a little bit looser than I thought.
2: Yeah, th- three
0: cents of stainless
2: steel wire and. uh <laughs> gets you a good yeah, result I, I do I love IMS screws I use them a lot they're dangerous weapons but I do use them but anyway yeah we're still evolving <laughs> we're still evolving that's great
0: exactly all right Mark thanks Thank a you. lot all right have a great night guys all right thanks again to Dr. Mark Engelstaff for just a phenomenal interview really really enjoyed that with him and feel free to reach out to him if you guys have any questions he's truly a wonderful person and he'll be happy to talk to you now without further ado let's jump into our journal club So Oscar, first off in our journal club, I do have a shout out to give. Uh, Former McGill resident Omar Suhaim did have a publication with Mike Maloro, who you'll know is famous from all his nerve studies and nerve grafting, and he's pretty much the nerve guy at this point. So his study was, does early repair of trigeminal nerve injuries influence neurosensory recovery, a systematic review and meta-analysis? So it won't be the article that we're focusing on for this journal club, but you know highly recommend people read this what's nice about a systematic review and meta-analysis is you kind of get the big picture on what is the literature saying about a certain topic i will say from reading the article you can just i've never done a systematic review or meta-analysis i'm not sure if you have oscar i haven't no because oh it's, man when you read it it's a lot. you feel exhausted it's a for lot. them yeah, yeah yeah i'm like
1: you worked for this publication
0: <laughs> yeah exactly this wasn't some dink and dug publication you worked hard for this and it's exhausting reading it, let alone I can imagine going through all that data and summarizing it and excluding things. Oh man, it was it's a lot of work that goes into it, but shout out to Omar because did a great job and it's a great paper. And it's nice to give credit to people that you trained with and that kind of went through the struggles with you when they're doing something good. So that's great. Exactly. Yeah. He he's doing the fellowship with Maloro in Chicago, works with them a lot. And it was nice that they got got a nice paper done together because Maloro is a big name and you know, he does all the nerve stuff. So if you get a paper with him, it's, it's, a, it's huge a big deal to him. Yeah. So we want to jump into the two articles that we chose for this month out of Jameis. And they're both related. They're both written by the same author, Brent Ward. And the first one is nice. It's more of an editorial type, like a letter to the audience. And the second one is kind of your more traditional real study. And then what's nice is the second article kind of addresses the problem raised in the first article. So the first article is entitled Time to Start Asking the Right Question or at least admit we do not have the answer. Indications for elective neck dissection in early stage oral cavity cancer. And this is by, once again, Brent Ward. He's the chair and section head of OMFS in Michigan at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. So pre-screen, passes the test. As high as you could. Exactly, oral surgeon, big program, big name, yeah, well-respected, well-known guy. So definitely pass the pre-screen for sure. I think it was a good article explaining the fundamental issues with taking randomized control trials or meta analysis at face value. We tend to think, oh, it's an RCT, prospective double-blind, or hey, this is a meta-analysis. This is great. This is the highest level of evidence we have, which is true. It's top of the pyramid. But, you know, there might be some underlying factors that make it not that reliable. You've been giving a lot of shout-outs lately. So
1: I'm gonna give one today. And so this point, it's true. Sometimes we get blinded into thinking research is a little stronger than we think it is, or that the data is more reliable than we think it is. I'm gonna give credit to a resident that we have in our program, Mohammed Al-Rabani, who you know quite well too. Yeah. He's at the UFT program and he has actually gone through the PhD stream. He really brought this up a lot in our journal club meetings that we would have at our program because we were all not convinced, but we thought the the data was more reliable than it was and he was able to point out like all these weaknesses that were like holy cow you know what the research in oral surgery is just not that strong realistically
0: does he have a strong statistical background he he does he does exactly well that's it i think you know and i'll be the first to admit sometimes we're not that experienced at reading the tables or understanding the nuances of what makes something statistically significant or if a study has enough power Yep or is a study reliable? Was it well? Because what's amazing is you can have a study that has great power, great numbers, great statistical significance, great impact. But because the design of the study yeah. in the first place was wrong in yeah. one small way, the whole thing doesn't, it, is it, invalid. Yeah,
1: exactly. And like that, honestly, some of the times I hated Mo because you'd bring us, you'd bring a study to journal <laughs> Club and he's going to start yeah. just tearing it apart. And I'm like, Mo, just leave it alone right now.
0: Yeah. yeah. Yeah, Mo, don't look at uh, don't look at our work, yeah. Oscar and I's work. Just take yeah. it at face value. It's all valid, it's all good. Exactly. There's no need to no need to investigate things too <laughs> too close up. But basically to explain to the listeners, you know, Brent Ward explains the flaws in the previous landmark head and neck papers related to elective neck dissection. So an elective neck dissection is when someone has oral cavity, squamous cell carcinoma, and they're undergoing a neck dissection to remove the lymph nodes and fatty tissue of the neck. Because you're thinking there might be some occult metastases there, yeah. or some hidden metastases, and it's elective because you have no clinical or radiographic evidence. data, yeah. or evidence that you know anything's wrong. Yep. So it's an elective neck dissection. We're not talking about therapeutic or salvage or anything like that. It's really just elective. And what he says is, you know, there's these landmark papers. One is by De Cruz, and one is the more, more recent one is the Send trial. And when I say these are landmark papers, we did a lot of oncology at McGill. And we did a lot of neck sections, a lot of free flaps, a lot of oncologic resections. And these papers are a big deal. You base your recommendations on these papers. You base your surgery on these papers. Oscar, I think you mentioned you didn't do oncology from an oral surgery point of view at your program, but you did it for your off service and you had to study for the board exam and you were referencing the same kind of data
1: exactly so and that's what i was saying we kind of had a little pre-discussion about the articles already and i was saying that it's true in my program we really didn't do any cancer when i was on service myself but when we go off service yes and then for the boards you have to know the stuff that you study and those are the papers that you reference and yeah you don't do it blindly but
0: you weigh them heavily exactly and and for those people thinking like oh oncology is unique this is all unique you might need to know it I mean, on the rubric of the board exam, reconstruction, pathology, it has a weighted allocation. It's going to be there. And I've seen, you know, questions that are related to resection, free flap reconstruction, like detailed questions. So don't think you don't need to know this for your board exam. So basically, we were using these recommendations on, you know, should you do an neck section or not based on depth of invasion, T1 versus T2. And if we were uncertain, you know, you're always presenting these cases at tumor board and people are giving recommendations, but everyone kind of agreed for the most part on what the recommendations were and looking at these papers and and, and why they were a good thing. But what he said is this paper, these papers are fundamentally flawed because they grouped together T1 and T2. Hugely biased. And he's like, oh, and he said, those are fundamentally different Diseases. entities. Yeah. He's like, you can't consider them the same at all. Yeah. Yeah. So he said, that's the number one flaw. And he said, the DeCruz paper did it. The Sen trial paper did, and then the meta-analysis, which looked at all the literature, determined that only the DeCruz and Sen trials were really valid for their meta-analysis. Therefore, the entire meta-analysis is based on the same flawed logic. Yep. You know, this was a takedown of some papers. Like he he took them down, he really kind of exposed them. Yeah. But this is the way to do it. He was professional, he was complimentary on their papers. He explained why it's difficult to do a proper study this way. And he explained what was wrong with them, why we cannot base it off of them. And what I love is he didn't mince words. He said, we cannot pretend that we have evidence or the answer on this. We do not have the answer. And we need to stop pretending we have the answer to this problem.
1: And so what I, I couldn't agree with you more on the fact that I like that he got his answer that he wanted to tell you, but he didn't sound condescending about it. He didn't sound like he was pontificating about it, that, oh, they're so wrong and I could do this better. It was like i get why it's hard to do he was telling you that he understands your perspective he's just saying i don't think we actually have the answer that they think they've discovered
0: exactly and as i said i cannot emphasize enough to anyone out there that you know hasn't treated head neck oncology we really really use these evidence-based recommendations to determine what we're doing but the main criticism is going to be well okay you identified a big problem with our current literature You identified that we're missing something. You know, you work at a big university, big program, lots of head and neck cancer done there. Have you done anything to help with this problem? Like, what have you done? Have have you helped contribute data? Well, boom, we get into our second article. Which is another win. Like, you can't win more than that. Exactly. So, in the same, you know, issue of Jameis, the December uh, issue, edition, exactly, he has another paper entitled, Elective Neck Dissection in T1- N0 M0 oral squamous cell carcinoma. When is it necessary? No. And he's built a study to look at this. So it was done with Feng et al. Ward is the is the supervising author and pre-screening. Everyone in the paper is OMFS, but they're from Beijing and Michigan. So we got an international collaboration, Super which I strong. think is huge, huge on the pre-screening, especially because they do so much oncologic surgery in china it's it's, it's, it's a just,
1: different level it's a different world it's a
0: different level yeah it's a different level i think the rate of smoking is higher there and also they have like 1.6 billion people yeah. so you're just you're gonna just going to see more numbers and they have hospitals more. that
1: are dedicated just to oral surgery it's just a different level up there and i will say exactly. another thing talking about shameless plugs or shout outs people may say oh you know what his first article is almost a shameless plug for a second article You could say that, but he's providing benefit with that article. So I wouldn't actually say it again here. I think this is a complete pass. I think he brought up an issue that he saw, but he also has a solution for it.
0: And I think what he did was smart because I think, and I don't know why the motivation from two separate, for two separate papers, but for me, you know, when I was going through Jameis and I saw the article we're about to talk about right now, coming from a oncologic program, I was like, oh, is there an update? Like, what is the new recommendation? I want to read this. But I think if you didn't have that background and you're reading through, you would more likely read his first article because it's like, we don't have the answer. Let's stop pretending. You're like, what's he talking about? And then you read it and you become more interested in the topic. You're more likely to read the next one. It definitely caught me reading that one first, for sure. Exactly. So in this article, you know, the introduction basically reiterates the problem that we have, which is that people with T1 disease, it's not the same as clinically as T2 disease. Almost all the studies that looked at elective neck section for T, grouped together T1 and T2, and most of the times that you needed to do a, a, a neck section, it was T2. So T1 is being unfairly grouped into this category that it doesn't belong in. It's just being dragged you know, along. Use, it's just being dragged along. And we use a 20% risk of occult metastases. That's usually when they say you should do an elective neck section. So what we normally want to use is the depth of invasion, the TNM staging to make this decision. So the other problem he said is that we all know it, you know, it varies based on the Yeah. you know, tongue and floor mouth are very different from hard palate or keratinized tissue, but we don't have any concrete evidence that explains the risk and how we should change our management. So they did a study, which was part retrospective, part prospective, by the way, I didn't know you could do that. Did you know you could do that? No, No, but again, I'm also not that versed in research
1: to tell you that, but I actually did not know
0: you could do that. So they did it where they did this thing where like part of their data was retrospective to go backwards, but then they also started a prospective yeah. study, which is awesome because it increases your numbers and you get more data. I think what he said in the discussion is it ends up having the, all the flaws of a retrospective s- a study, which so I don't think you can declare this is. Which he acknowledges, so I don't think you could say that it's a prospective study or as powerful as one. Mm-hmm. But I didn't know you could do that. I feel like that's kind of like a nice cheat code where you can kind of yeah. do retrospective to get all these yeah, numbers, to get your numbers and up. Then kind of yeah yeah exactly and then start like a prospective to like continue and keep my i don't know it'd be interesting to know like how that works and if that's allowed but for this study it was and he said as far as the actual patients there were 283 patients so nice big number everyone was clinically t1 and zero there was no t2s and it was all clinically based so that that's exactly the question that's what we're looking for yep that's what we're looking for Everyone was treated surgically per normal institutional protocol, so one to one and a half centimeter margins uh, resection. And if there was any intraoperative or postoperative uh, report showing a positive margin, they would do another reexcision to get clean margins. So jumping into the results, the tongue was the most commonly involved subsite, followed by the lower gingiva and the buccal mucosa. Ninety nine patients underwent elective neck dissection. One hundred eighty four underwent neck observation Mm -hmm. and just for the people not as familiar the other reason why it's such a big deal is a neck dissection doesn't have the highest level of comorbidity but it's not risk-free it's not risk-free and you are you know a resection for example of a of a tongue cancer that's small t1 you could do literally in like 20 minutes versus you had a neck dissection depending on how comfortable how fast you are it could be a three-hour case instead. Yeah, you know, that, because that's it, the it,
1: question most people are going to ask. Why not just do it? But that's yeah, what you're saying. Ex- exactly. It, it's not risk-free.
0: Exactly. It's not risk-free. Now, on the other side of that, it's terrifying. You know, we talked earlier in this podcast about my fear operating around the orbit. It's also terrifying as a head and neck surgeon who deals with cancer in these families to think, I'm not doing a neck dissection, knowing that if you get a nodal metastasis, it's way worse. Yeah. its I don't want to say it's game over, but it's really bad yeah, yeah. to have a neck metastasis. Your survival rate plummets. You know, if someone presents with positive node versus negative node, it's already a 50% decrease in survival rate. Yeah. So it can be a big deal. So I empathize with the people that find it very difficult not to offer that therapy as well. So of the 99 patients that received the elective neck dissection, the rate of cervical node involvement was 14.1%. So... It was less than the 20% threshold that mm-hmm. we kind of go by to, to perform the surgery. But, you know, 14 out of uh, almost 14 out of 100 patients did have pathological disease. It, it's 1.5 out of 10, which is, if exactly. you look at it that
1: way, like that's not insignificant either.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's a great, great way of putting it. And then as we discussed, the people that had delayed lymph node metastasis during the fall period, and the fall period was two years, because that's the most common time that you'll have this metastasis come up. It was 21 out of 184, so 7.5% of people developed delayed lymph node metastasis. So, you know, they go into a lot of specific data that we encourage people to read the paper on as far as percentages and who got what. It is important to summarize that they break it down by uh, depth of invasion and the different sites. Yeah. And that was probably the most eye-opening point because, you know, we've used for a long time, the data showed a four millimeter cutoff, then it was a three millimeter cutoff. Yep. Then people said, you know, if anything more than two, you should probably do it. But as, you know, Brent Ward said, a lot of this was, you know, based on the surgeon's preference or their experience. It wasn't based on hard data. A lot of the hard data, you know, kind of said four millimeters is the cutoff. And then yep. it kind of got lowered eventually to three in the SEND trial. So, you know, to have a discussion about this, They said regarding the tongue specifically, according to their data, using a 20% cutoff, you should only be doing it if it's four millimeters or more. But they said, you know, in their data, greater than two millimeters had 18% positive.
1: That was a bit of the anomaly there, where it's like that was high and then it drops a little bit for three and four.
0: Yeah, exactly. So I think if you're going to use 20% as your cutoff, then for the tongue, you should only do it four millimeters. But even they admit that 18% is really close to 20%. So if you're greater than two millimeters, they say it warrants strong consideration for neck dissection with the tongue subsite. Yeah. But even that, I'm, I'm thinking, we're always saying how we don't have good data and we need proper data. Well, here we have proper data and it's saying four millimeters and yet we're still saying, yeah, let's probably go with two. Yeah. So are we still succumbing to the same
1: I bias think, I there? Think, and I think that is the bias of saying, if I miss it, the consequence can be really bad. And I think if it was a less stressful consequence, I think you'd go exactly with what the data says. Right now because it's telling you that you don't have to go until four but because the consequence is so bad you're just going to be a little more cautious i think that's human nature to tell you the truth
0: yeah yeah exactly they did discover some some things which is you know all the patients that had scc of the hard palate none of them developed neck metastasis no matter what the depth of invasion was um they talked about other sub like the bucking mucosa and the gingiva so just a really really good study to provide some more concrete numbers and some more recommendations and Obviously I no longer do head and neck oncology. We don't do that in the fellowship and I, I won't be doing it uh, when I graduate. I'm not trained to do that. So I think it would be great, you know, in the future to get some feedback from someone that treats head and neck cancer to yep. say what they thought of the article and is is it going to change their practice or are we missing something? That's something we can work on doing, but what were your overall impressions of the article and, and what people should take away from it?
1: Honestly, I, I was impressed. And again, I'm coming from a program that I, I didn't. And on my on-service, I did not do any ed, ed cancer. We did it on our off-service, but I thoroughly enjoyed both articles. And I enjoyed the combination even more, where the, the question or the problem was posed to everybody. And then there was not a clear solution, but a pretty clear solution, I would say, or response. I thought it was great. I thought it was well done. I thought it was done at two... High-end institutions with a lot of patients, and even they over, they kind of picked up their own flaws too. Like like we just talked about, tongue less than two millimeters, even though the data says four millimeters. But they still tell you, you know what you still got to strongly consider it. I thought it was well written and really was a valuable
0: article. Awesome. So, show to Brent Ward. Thanks for the great publications. We really appreciate them, and hopefully this will have an impact going forward and, and determine if people need surgery or not. So it could make a huge deal, huge change in the uh, head and neck oncology world. All right, that's it for Journal Club. Let's move on to Resident Reminder. So for the Resident Reminder, we kind of wanted to continue the head and neck oncology stream just to quickly mention something that, you know, will come up on the board exam, as you said, or you'll come up on your mock boards, or you definitely need to know. This is something that is commonly, commonly asked. And this is for oral cavity squamous cell carcinoma. What are the indications for adjuvant radiation treatment? or chemotherapy and you're and right adjuvant yeah. adjuvant means post-surgically you've done your surgery and you're giving radiation therapy or chemotherapy after
1: and i want to say you're right in the sense that even if you're not doing it you still need to know it
0: exactly you need to know it and neoadjuvant would mean before treatment but when it comes to head and neck cancer that we deal with mostly you know squamous cell carcinoma you almost never need to give neoadjuvant treatment yeah. it's almost always adjuvant treatment so let's get into these indications. So we'll start off with radiation therapy. So there are six things you should think about when it comes to radiation therapy and whether or not you need to offer it or strongly consider it post-operatively. So the indications are, number one, you have a close margin. So a close margin means you did your surgical resection, you send to the final pathologist, and they say the distance between your margin of your resection and the first cancer cell they see is less than five millimeters. You're aiming for a five millimeter or greater margin. We usually do a one centimeter resection because you can't obviously tell exactly where, where the where it ends. So we usually do a one 10 millimeter resection to hopefully have a five millimeter or greater margin. One funny side bit is you also can't trust people that always have negative margins because it could just mean they're taking way too much tissue. Like there's an, there's an art to this. You I'm gonna want to take, take your whole tongue. To, yeah, exa- yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So it's, it's man, head and neck oncology is tough. I don't envy the people that have to do it. Yeah. So there, there's a kind of a balance there. Second indication is mun- multiple lymph nodes. So you have positive lymphadenopathy in the neck, multiple sites, multiple different lymph nodes. Number three, you have a T3 or T4 lesion. So these higher graded lesions and, you know, higher size at T3 and T4, they strongly recommend radiation therapy. Number four, lymphovascular invasion so this is something that you can only tell post-operatively when you get your final pathology report the pathologist will tell you well you seem to have some malignancy that's invading the lymphovascular system or they can also talk about number five which is perineural invasion so it's ra- invading around the yep. nerve or number six extra capsular extension. extensions the lymph nodes have capsules you know it's invading the capsule it's going beyond it those are your six indications for post-operative Radiation therapy. And
1: that's a nice little list right there that everyone should memorize or should know.
0: You have to memorize that. It's easy marks and you're you're guaranteed to be asked that. So you really need to know that. Luckily for chemotherapy, adjuvant chemotherapy, very simple. Only two indications. You have a positive margin. So there's residual disease, or you have extra caps or extension once again. Yeah. Those are only two, two indications for that. So, so total chemotherapy is like until it's eight and two, the two chemo ones automatically qualify you for radiation therapy. Yeah. So, so it takes it's us. It's not two. that much. It's only it takes, four yeah, different yeah. ones. Yeah, it's pretty much four different ones. You don't need to worry about it. It's it's really simple to memorize once you have it in front of you. And we've just given it to you in a list form. So I recommend everyone study that, memorize that, and it's gonna help you for sure. The other thing we want to talk about from a resident reminder point of view is the importance of maintaining a surgical log. So one thing we do a lot of uh, of on this podcast, is we quote numbers, you quote your experience, I quote my numbers that I've been doing here. I I told you already December is going to be crazy and I can't wait to discuss the numbers in January. Well, the only reason we're able to do that is because you have to have an accurate surgical log. I wish I had a better log starting from R1. I really only started my log properly in R5 from R1 to R4, you know, sometimes you have to use these other stupid programs or codes or websites to do your logs. You got to have a personal log. And it's simple. If you have an Excel document, it can do all the calculations and all the stuff for you. The people at McGill have seen mine because, you know, I I made it when I was R5 and everyone just kind of copy pasted it just because it gives you like a breakdown of stats. But all you need is you need the date, patient's information whether that's you know a name a coded name or an mrn or something like that diagnosis procedure and then i have this thing called type so i grouped them into like the type of procedure was so i have tmj dental alveolar orthognathic pathology That's exactly how i had mine exactly oncology trauma infection cosmetics and cleft craniofacial and then the staff you worked with if you had a junior who was that and then a lot of people will include other stuff in their log, like estimated blood loss or definitely, type of anesthesia. Definitely didn't do that. Definitely did ASA. That. It's like, yeah. Come on. Do you really? I don't think you need to know that, especially type of anesthesia. Like, if it's not general, why is it under your log? Like, what's going on here?
1: Yeah, and again, so, in my opinion, it's it's a surgical log, not a patient yeah. log. Like, what you want to <laughs> yeah. keep track of is the surgery you are doing.
0: Yeah, exactly. And you know, when you meet with your program director and you're having your yearly eval and they say, what are you comfortable with or what do you need to see more of? You can say, look, this is my log. Yeah, I've done this many orthodontics, but I've seen no TMJ. Yeah. So how do I fix that? So if you set it up your log that way, especially on Excel, then you can just set it up so that it automatically calculates. So I can tell you literally exactly how many I've done for R5, R6, fellowship, total, um, number of joints, number of jaws, just everything. So it's we highly, highly recommend Maintaining a surgical log. And if you don't start at the beginning, it's a nightmare to go back and try and figure out what you did and how many.
1: And, and then I will say too, for your first couple of years, don't get frustrated if your numbers are low. Yeah. Because when you talk to someone that's above, that's higher than you or maybe another program, that's because you don't know how their program is structured in comparison to yours. Just know yep. that and just trust that by the end of your program, you're going to be comfortable doing most surgeries there. So don't get too overwhelmed about the number or comparison to other people. Just have an updated one, one that's organized really early on makes sense.
0: And remember, this is just to give you kind of an overview and and help you have numbers that you can present to a university, a hospital, things like that. It doesn't correlate directly with your experience level or your expertise. As you said, you know, you could have 10 ZMC fractures on your log where you were there assisting. I could have one on my log where I actually had to do the thing start to finish. What's more valuable? what's more valuable exactly so don't use it a comparator to your colleagues but more of a a kind of measure of how you're doing and how you're growing and maybe what areas you need to, to get more experience in yeah so that sums up our resident reminder hopefully you found that helpful and now we can transition to our final segment our recommendations so oscar for our recommendations first up i want to bring up miller smith once again another comment he had is he likes our recommendation section. He likes that we mentioned different shows. One show that he recommended that I have seen completely, and I don't know if you've seen it. Let's hear it. And it's on Netflix, is Homeland. No, no, haven't heard it. Okay, good. Because I was thinking of this, because when Miller brought up Homeland, I said, I've seen it. It's, I think it's seven seasons. I've seen it all. And the good thing is it's done. So you know that you know, you're going yeah. to finish it. Yeah. The show's completed. It's over. And I thought of you because... You know, the, one of the most common things you always bring up is you're running out of shows to watch. This is a show that's on Netflix; so you can access it easily. I really enjoyed the show. It is, it's I guess drama thriller in the sense or mystery drama thriller, thriller. Yeah, it's like counter, it's like a counterterrorism show, but it's not like 24 where it's just like action and no plot. This yeah. is like purely plot, character, yeah, hey, I mystery like that. Based. And I was like, if Oscar hasn't seen this, this is going to be the best recommendation for him. No,
1: that is good because you know what? My favorite things are one, when it's easily accessible, so like Netflix, and two, when there's multiple seasons because you know I love to binge watch shows. My pet pet peeve is waiting for the next episode.
0: (laughs) Okay. So that's perfect. So so you should check out Homeland. I will say when you start, just remember, the first season at the beginning, it might feel slow. It's kind of like Breaking Bad, how Breaking Bad started off really slow and it just became really good. Yeah. The first season, the beginning, the first bunch of episodes, I will say, it starts off slow. Okay, You just need to accept that and keep watching because the end of the first season and the beginning of the second season is some of like the most enthralling television okay. you will watch. Like you will be binging it for sure.
1: This is perfect because we like this very similar show. So if you're giving it this kind of review, I'm gonna watch it for sure.
0: Yeah, I really enjoyed it. I always found it unpredictable and just entertaining. So I enjoyed it. And I think there are like 10 or 13 episode seasons. So not not too long. So shout out to Miller for that recommendation that we can then pass on to Oscar and the listeners. And I think you'll enjoy that. For me personally, I wanted to also endorse Homeland just because it came up. But I also wanted to say I watched Queen's Gambit. Oh, You brought it up last time. I told you. You know, this this sounds right up my alley. Why am I resisting this? Everyone's talking about it. But just because everyone's enjoying a show doesn't mean you're not going to enjoy it. I mean... You don't have to be, ant- you can just be one of the, you know, the, the sheep, you can one be, of the masses. You can be part
1: of the mass. It doesn't matter. Just be part of the mass.
0: Yeah. yeah. Everyone loves it. They love it for a reason. And this is the weird thing I found about it though. Cause I loved the show, but I also really liked chess. And you mentioned how you don't really care about chess or play chess. And you still love the show. Yeah, I think it fits for everybody. And that's, what's weird to me is the, the feedback I get from everyone. Cause everyone's watched it is that it fits everyone. And What I would say is if you like chess or have ever played chess, you are going to love this show. But I guess even if you don't like chess or haven't played, you're still going to love
1: this show. This is how much people have loved this show. So I was driving to work a couple of weeks ago after we had talked about the show, and there's an 1,000% increase in the amount of chess boards that are being bought online after the show has come out. (laughs) So that's how successful that's been for chess right now. Well, you know Why? Why? Because was about a
0: chessboard. Oh, see, <laughs> see, I told you, everybody's doing it. Yeah. I went to work, we're all talking about it. And, you know, a bunch of people at work, they used to play chess. I was like, I used to play chess to so like go buy a chessboard. We're playing. <laughs> we have a chessboard in the office now. That's amazing. <laughs> the best thing that's happened so, to chess in years is this show right now. Oh, 100%. So the recommendation I want to give is, you know, I wanted to give my secondary stamp of approval. We, we've done this show. I recommend something you may or may not take it if Oscar recommends it you may not take it but if we both watch something and we both enjoy it I mean you gotta listen to it you gotta watch yeah, it. yeah yeah like if two of us come on like like at least give it a chance so to take this one step further now I'm going too far down the chess rabbit hole we were playing chess but we don't have time to play chess at work we have this board maybe <laughs> you can get one game at the end of the day but there's no time you finish at different times you're late you're tired so my workplace we've now downloaded the chess app yep chess.com you can play your friends for free and you can set up where you only have to make one move like a day so, so you can play so a game it, over the course over the month. of like yeah exactly yeah, yeah so highly recommend the app chess.com it's totally free if you want to play me my username is wm1989 and he challenged me to chess one move a day is what he plays at speed wise exactly like don't don't come at me saying i'm waiting for you to make a move it's not you know, happening it's 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 one move a day is the time <laughs> limit you know we're not, we're not playing rabbit chess here so <laughs> that's what i had for my recommendations really was a shout out to you oscar for a great show that you told us about last episode that i really really enjoyed awesome how let's, about you let's see if
1: i keep the same thing up next next month when i'm already crushed home blender i can tell you for sure i'm gonna finish it <laughs> let's see if i actually yeah. like it so mine i know i told you before that i'm starting to be running out of shows and now it's not even running out of shows here in Canada it's a little bit different than you. We've been stuck in this kind of pandemic craze for a while, so I'm just I'm almost getting tired of just the same routine of just watching shows. We're not really doing anything else. So this is more of a a life thing, I would say. My thing I've been trying to do lately is just trying to get back into shape because I mm. felt like I, all I was doing for a while is just watching your shows and watching your shows and not really doing anything else. I felt like nothing else was going on. So now I started getting back into shape. I started running a lot. So I think people need to find something else to do in that sense, too. Like, don't just get stuck in the same monotony of where we're going home, we're going to work, we're going home, we're going to work, we're watching TV. Do something else that makes you feel good. So that's my kind of advice on that. If we're talking about shows, because we do talk about it on the segment, I just finished a new one that probably a lot of people have also watched recently. and It's called The Undoing.
0: Oh, dude. <laughs> Everyone's been talking about this show. Yeah. Somehow you always come up. Somehow I find you've always finished watching the show that everyone's been telling me to watch, but I just stubbornly haven't started yet. And then you bring it up and you say it's amazing. You gotta watch it. Dude, I have HBO for free right now. Even more, even
1: more. The only thing I would say is, yeah, if you don't have HBO, you gotta pay for it. But other than that, there's no reason for you not to watch it. It's six episodes. Again, it's another one of those mass shows that everybody's watching and talks about it. I really enjoyed it. Again, it's got a strong cast. The plot is cool. I think you'll also really like the show.
0: Okay, Yeah. yeah. It's funny because... Yeah. Everyone's been telling me about that one. And I'm going to add that to my list. So you have to watch Homeland. I have to watch The Undo. Nice. And that's funny that I worked that way. You know, regarding your getting in shape thing, that's something that I also struggle with because you don't have a lot of time. And then when you get home late, the oh. last thing you want to do is work out. Yep. So I think if, if it's possible to work out in the morning at all in your daily schedule, I think that that helps because it's so much easier to get out of the way. And then the rest of the day you don't have to worry about it. Yep. But I was going to ask you if someone's newer to running or, or hasn't in a while what do you do do you listen to music do you listen to like what do you do during your run so motivate you to keep to keep going
1: and so don't listen to me because I'm weird like that like when I work out I don't really listen to music I'm just out there running but like you run
0: without any music yeah, or any audio exactly that's what I mean like I'm, I cannot do that yeah I'm weird like that.
1: that but so I will say so Lexi my girlfriend we've I've started to get her into running too and she is all about music and it made it such a difference because at first she was kind of just following me where she wouldn't have her headphones in because we were trying to maybe like talk a little bit, trying to get her into running. She yeah. really wasn't liking it. As soon as she went, put headphones in and put the music she likes. Oh, what a difference. What a difference.
0: Okay. Yeah. So yeah, I'm the opposite of you. I need music and I need music that's like motivating me or, or, or good music. Luckily these days on any streaming service, Spotify, oh. music, you just put like running or motivation, yeah. whatever mix and. You can listen to like uplifting beats and stuff, but man, impressive that you can do with that music. I, I would not be able to do that.
1: I don't know, impressive or just weird. One of the two.
0: Yeah, yeah one, <laughs> one of the others. Yeah. So that wraps up our last edition of the year. Wow. This is the last episode of 2020. Goodbye, 2020. We will not miss you. No. And we will be back in a brand new year in January. Thanks to everyone who's continuing to listen. If you have any feedback or recommendations or you want to get in touch with us, Our email is teethandtitaniumomfs at gmail.com. We always love to hear from our listeners. So definitely send us an email, even if it's just to say hi. And we will talk to you guys in January. See you later. Take care, guys.